Oh shit, we're recording. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Double Reel, the podcast that caters to the refined tastes of the sophisticated film nerd. It's July 2021 and people are waiting a little bit longer than planned for the world to open up again. In the meantime, we're here to get you through with your regular fix of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. Uh, happy to be back. Um, happy that things are opening up again. Hopefully, um, they're opening up soon. We aim to provide an old-school filmgoers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can go to the foyer for a Kia Ora and a Wessler's hot dog. Uh, I'm too young to know what any of that means. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 15. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're looking at The Constant Gardener, the Oscar-winning adaptation of a John Le Carre novel. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is The Illusionist, the other period drama about a stage magician that came out in 2006. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 15, we have one of the most famous lost films of the martial arts genre, Bruce Lee's The Game of Death. We close the first rule of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month features The Jackal, the updated version of Frederick Forsyth's classic The Day of the Jackal. We also have a bonus feature for you this month. After the end of the first reel, there will be a spoiler-packed discussion of Tenet, Christopher Nolan's big release from 2020, now that we've had time to watch and think about it. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Addisons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 15, we mark the upcoming release of No Time to Die with a discussion of what the future may hold for the James Bond franchise. At the end of Reel 2, you will have the opportunity to revisit the Tenet discussion from the other direction in a kind of temporal pincer movement. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Chris got in touch after our last episode and said, The remake Hate Watch has got me fuming. I had no idea such a shit Robin Hood existed. Ignorance truly was bliss. Assume you mean the Taron Egerton version, Chris, and yes, we very much agree. Uh, people have been getting in touch about the features that we're um, going to be doing in this month's episode. And on the Escape from New York, uh, which is our entry for the Year of the Carpenter, uh, a number of people got in touch. Jake, Alex, and Paul gave it some love. Uh, William says, I'm a big fan and watched it with my dad growing up. Hope the threatened remake never happens. Yes, William, you're on our wavelength. For The Constant Gardener, our uh, classics and recommended for this month, Michael says, I got bored of this film and gave up halfway through. I didn't care about any of the characters. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. On our hidden. Good. Good. 
<laughs> on our hidden gem, The Illusionist, uh, my post on this was comparing it to The Prestige, which came out the same year. Uh, Sean says, I really like both, and Denise agrees. Renee says, apart from featuring stage magicians, they're not apples and apples. One is basically a love story, and the other is about almost demented personal sacrifices. Harvey says, Illusionist is one of my favorite films. Paul Giamatti is the best thing in it. Andrew says, only one of these films has David Bowie as Tesla, so that's my choice. Understand. For our one that got away game of death, Quan Lo got in touch and says, we missed out on the true greatness Bruce Lee had in store for us when he died. For our remake, Hate Watch the Jackal, Andrew says, I like the remake and wasn't keen on the original, which I am genuinely shocked to hear. Ah, um, I'm going to bomb your ma. <laughs> Mark says, not a very memorable film apart from Bruce Willis's wigs, Richard Gere's dodgy accent, and Jack Black <laughs> getting his arm blown off. I didn't, says his- I didn't even get that far into the film. I didn't know Jack Black was in the fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, t- we'll talk more about that later. Matthias says it's got nothing on the original. On our big conversation about the Bond franchise, Zach says, Tom Hardy or Idris Elba for the next Bond, please. Also, the franchise made a big mistake years ago keeping 007 as one person instead of a code name that different people take on, which is an, it's an interesting take we've heard a number of times, and I think we will be going into that in our conversation. Kay says if they're going to keep this going and not run out of steam, they need to bring in new ideas and writers, shake it up a bit. Warren says, I think the future of Bond is the same as the last 15 years have been. Overblown action with an emotionally damaged super spy and a villain who conveniently joins the dots of all the previous film storylines. I feel like you're not keen, Warren. (laughs) Mel says, I think we should just let the Bond legacy end, which is a a stark comment. Thanks for all your messages, even the ones that there wasn't time to read out. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021 and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. The uh, the added feature that we've got this month we just wanted to mention is the Tenet slot. Uh, an explanation of that is we, we have been looking at bonus podcasts to do, but in the end... The tenant discussion was uh, a relatively short one, so we've decided not to to do it as a as a standalone podcast. Although I might just release it as a as a bonus feature for anyone who wants to listen to just that. You know, you never know; people might want to just have a straightforward listen to it. Um, but it's just for us to talk about it to counterpoint. One of us liked it more than the other one. Um, but other than that, it is a pretty pretty standard episode. And uh, the first thing that we always look at is the news. Um, any news that uh, that jumped out at you this month, mate? Not really. It seems like it's all kind of going back to normal now so films are just you know being released in cinemas um i didn't see anything in particular i know the emmys were released but that's more tv so other yeah than that, yeah we've had award season which tends to make the well, news it's, section it's quite weird impactful. what's weird is that the emmys were released but hamilton got nominated for a lot of them even though it's kind of like that weird it's not a full film because it's a stage production that's just been recorded but it's strange isn't it because it got nominated in the films um award categories in in the, in the cinema award season and it's been nominated for um for tv because it because it's a recording of and, and it's a sta- it's it's actually a stage production but because they recorded it and put it out on disney plus they've treated it as both a film and a television program which is fair enough yeah I, I still think that's that is eventually going to be made into a film which is going to be a massive event and you know hopefully they don't give it to the guy who did cats right Oh, <laughs> they should. You know who they should give it to? They should give it to Dexter Fletcher. He's got a, an impeccable record on filming musicals. Yes, 
he does actually. He's 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 actually he's not like he doesn't really seem to have any outstanding kind of techniques as a director that you think, oh, why that's a Dexter Fletcher film. But his films are but, just usually good. You know, they're they're but, all and, right. And his, and and he and he seems to have musicals cracked. He saved the Bohemian Rhapsody film. Um, yeah. And then he he's the one who did he did Sunshine on Leith, which was the film of the uh, of the, the Proclaimers musical. Kind of rubbish though. Yeah, I mean, it's a very. The thing is that the, I don't think the Proclaimers have got as, as strong uh, a jukebox as some of these others. When you think about you know Jersey Boys, you know the Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons had a long career of, of big big songs. Um, but he also did the Elton John musical, which came out very well, and he, he seems to have a knack. Um, but we'll see. Um, the, the news I saw there was a couple of a couple of kind of obituaries. Uh, Richard Donner died, age ninety one. He was a film director famous for doing the first Christopher Reeve Superman film in nineteen seventy eight, which kind of kicked off the modern era of superhero films. He also directed the second up to a point um, and was fired. And then the Donner cut came out, which was a bit of a precursor for the. Um, uh, the Zack Snyder cut, cut coming out of, uh, of Justice League, although most people believe that the the Richard Donner cut of Superman Two is really really justified. He also directed a number of films people might have heard of or seen, uh, like Scrooged, uh, Goonies, and The Omen. So he's a very a very versatile director. It's hard to mm-hmm. it's hard to pin down his style, except a number of his films were, were very good. Also, Robert Downey Senior died. Fucking hell, he's he most famous. He was about 80, 85, I think. He was most famous for being the father of Robert Downey Jr., obviously. He was also an avant-garde director of films like Putney, Swope, and Pound, which aren't that well-known to the general public, or me, if I'm honest. Uh, but they were big influences on modern filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson and Jim Jarmusch. He also had small acting roles here and there in, in things like Boogie Nights and various other things. Um, a couple of other news headlines, which I guess are are interesting because they they, re- they relate to films that are currently in production. Harrison Ford has recovered apparently from the injury that kept him out of filming Indiana Jones 5 for the last three months. He's been seen walking around without the sling on his arm in Glasgow where they're filming at the moment. Oh, um, I, yeah, I saw that the other day. Um, yeah, yeah. They, they, seem, they like to make use of some of the older buildings in Glasgow by the looks of it. It's weird because they're not old, old. They're all sandstone and red brick. Um Mm. But um, it's I suppose it, I mean, it's weird because you don't get a lot of filming in Scotland. But um, I suppose it's easier on traffic. Um, that was the, yeah. they wanted to film Game of Thrones here, but they didn't because um, the Scottish government were like heavy taxing it, so they just went to Ireland instead. And Ireland's basically the same country. It's mm-hmm. yeah, well, in every sense of the word, it's um, yeah. alcoholism, yeah. religious intolerance, green. Um, yeah. But yeah, but but more tax efficient. Yes. Because they're all corrupt over in Ireland. That's not the, <laughs> no. I didn't. I didn't know this. This is a real side note. But did you know that um, pri- uh, property prices in Ireland are so expensive, especially in Dublin, for rent, um, like rent rates, is because lots of MPs. I don't know what they call them over in Ireland uh, in the Irish Parliament, but they're all landlords. Mm-hmm. They're all yeah, landlords you know that benefits them all. <clears throat> There's a bit of that in this country as well, which which means that um, policy and acts of parliament regarding uh, you know the housing and rental market are often uh, uh, distorted by the fact that people voting on it have a vested interest. Um, there you go. Yeah. You don't just get cinema news; you get interest, your political analysis of multiple EU countries when you come to this that's, podcast. That's everyone, just a, so. that's a typical Scottish thing. Just concerning yeah, yeah. yourself with things that are going on in Ireland. Um, <laughs> yes, very much so. The other bit of news we got is Mission Impossible 7 is filming in Derbyshire at the moment. They were recently hit with COVID delays with allegedly 14 members of the crew testing positive. Uh, the release date for the film has now been pushed back to May 2022. That'll they're filming, they're Sorry. filming part eight in the series back-to-back, hoping to release that just a year later. 
it's the fastest turnaround in films that they've done since ever since they started really in the in the 1990s um which i think is a function of however ageless tom cruise is i don't think he wants to still be doing this when he's uh when he's nearly 70 um well, he's 60 next year isn't it? no the year yeah, he's 60 he's 60 next year and no, he's 63. So I, is, is he not born in 63 Oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah, he's, he's so he's getting close to he's getting close to sixty, and I think what he's doing is if if they can get two more Mission Impossible films in the can, I think that's uh, who knows. He might keep going on forever. I mean, if Harrison Ford can still do Indiana Jones in whatever age he is, I imagine um, I imagine Harrison Ford has a couple of stunt doubles where Tom Cruise doesn't because that's no, no, because he's stick. mental. Yeah, yeah. Now the the um, as we sort of mentioned last last week, the the, the news uh, is going to partly be uh, covered by the the fact that there are new films out. They're actually new for a lot of films new, um, out for release. And it's quite crowded, isn't it? And I think that's because so many films have been holding out for restrictions to be eased, that there's films that could have been, you know, anything that was due to be released in 2019 and was held back for reshoots. So, you know, sometimes they just delay a film thinking, oh, we'll release it next year. And then tough luck on them, COVID happened. Anything that they wanted to release in 2020 and they decided to push back. So it's really crowded now. It's like they've someone's finally taken the thumb off the hose and, and the films are flowing hard. But uh, Black Widow is out this month. It's it's out already in some territories. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, the Forever Purge is out. There's a sequel to The Boss Baby, which I don't think anybody oh, asked for, The Boss Baby God. Family Business. Um, an interesting film, uh, James, which I thought you'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about, is called Pig. Yes, because it's Nicolas Cage and a pig. Yeah, Nicolas Cage plays a truffle hunter who has to confront his past. Stop, stop. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Nicholas Cage plays a truffle hunter. You don't need to tell me the plot. Nicholas Cage doing anything, especially hunting for fucking truffles. <laughs> it, it gets better though. He's a truffle hunter who has to confront his past when his truffle hunting pig <laughs> is stolen and he has to get it back. You know what? I saw an advert for that just this morning. I just did a kind of review on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. It got ninety seven percent. It must be amazing. <laughs> I think that's just people haven't seen it yet, but just think that's such the perfect oh, Nicholas Cage film. I fucking love that man. He's completely fucking bonkers. What's even stranger that it's only one of two <laughs> films about truffle hunting that are being released at around about the same time. Do they both have Nicholas Cage in them? No, the Fuck. other one's just the other one's a documentary called The Truffle Hunter. But I just thought it was a really kind of low key and weird example of that phenomenon in in, in Hollywood. Very when neat. two versions of the same story come along at once, you know, like the two ants movies, two asteroid hitting the Earth, Earth movies, and now we've got two truffle hunter movies coming out at the same time, and we'll see which one wins at the box office. <laughs> I just thought that really that brightened my day when I read about that. There's, there's an even longer list. There's a, a Space Jam sequel or strike reboot with LeBron instead of uh, yeah. of Michael Jordan. There's a new M Night Shyamalan thriller called Old, as in this plot twist routine is getting old. Uh, there's Snake Eyes, which is a GI Joe spin-off. Uh, okay. Um, there's a film that's been heavily advertised on the TV called The Comeback Trail with Robert De Niro and Morgan Freeman, and I think Tommy Lee Jones. Um, it's had mixed reviews so far. The trailer suggested it's it's a bit zany and trying too hard, and it's a remake. Um, there's The Green Knight, which is a retelling of Gawain and The Green Knight, one of the more creepy and supernatural King Arthur legends with Dev Patel as Gawain. Uh, and Jungle Cruise, which is uh, another cinematic release by Disney based on one of their theme park rides, which actually... Is that like the heavy character- racist one? I can't remember. Oh no, which one's sure. that? Is it Splash Mountain or is it Thunder? There's one that's heavy racist. I don't. It might not be that one. Jungle Cruise. Yeah. No, Jungle, that's no. There is. There is one though. If if it was um, released in the fifties, they might have had Jungle Cruise, and they there's there's the potential for a really racist version of that ride where there's lots of people blacked up with a bone through their nose. 
playing tribes people. I could see Hollywood in the fifties doing that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll have. I'm sure they'll have cleaned it up. It's 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 Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I mean, his presence is not a guarantee of quality because he seems to make about six films a year, but he's usually watchable and gives us all. Splash I just Mountain. Don't think- Splash Mountain. What was racist about Splash Mountain? I'm, 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 We've been I'm, on I'm Splash Mountain, now. haven't we? Yeah, um, I, 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 I don't seem to remember it now. Disney is overhauling Splash Mountain to remove the, the song. First, the first Google result is Splash Mountain racist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the Song of the South. That's right. They had a um, they had a real kind of zippity doodah black minstrel kind of feel to the the, the film that came oh, out okay. back then. That's why. Um, how, do you, how do you how do you make a theme park ride racist? Oh, that's hell. to be honest, that's one of many things Disney might need, might need to overhaul. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, jung, Jungle Cruise. I mean, I think that they were they were lucky to get away with the first Pirates of the Caribbean film, which was a film based on a which was a really theme good. Park ride. Yeah, and, and I'm sure the idea of a jungle, you know, they just take the words jungle and cruise and they can do what they like with the storyline. And but I'm not sure I can be personally be bothered, but you I'll never know. When, on Disney Plus, you know. Yeah, yeah. When 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 Dwayne, when The Rock did uh, uh, a Jumanji follow up, I didn't have high expectations, but that turned out to be pretty good. So who knows? Um, there's a film called Still Water Out with Matt Damon in. It says it's inspired by the Amanda Knox case, which is. Which was that again? Is that the one who got convicted of murder in that last year in Italy and then got off it? Uh, yeah, the uh, there were there turned out to be a lot of flaws in the uh, in the prosecution case. Um, I think what they've done is that is so controversial. There, you know, that's yeah. going to get discussed forever. Um, but I think what they've done is they've used that as an inspiration where Matt Damon plays a father who has to come across to Europe to help his daughter who's been wrongly accused. And I think it's easier for them to to do a completely fictional story. But, you know, they'd get bogged down in, in all sorts of shite if they're trying to do a straight Amanda Knox film. Yeah. Uh, and next month, there's a new Suicide Squad film out. They're called The Suicide Squad. This is DC's third attempt to get this off the ground, if you include Birds of Prey. Hopefully, they've got the memo that however good Margot Robbie is as Harley Quinn, you still need to build a decent film around her. But with DC, you never know, right? Yeah, I, this is the James Gunn one, this one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they obviously like what he did with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and have brought him across. Um, no, it's I think he he is he, he's a good director and he got in trouble for those old tweets that he put out ages ago and that's why he got panned off from Guardians of the Galaxy Oh, 3. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I remember um, that. But all of those tweets were quite dark humour, um, which whether you yeah, agree I with think it or was, dislike I, or, I think, or a I sensitive think, snowflake about it's... Um, that I did, think that's, he, it did seem like he was a little bit harshly judged, didn't it? It was tweets from 2012, which cancel culture is... Unless it's proper serious shit, he, the t- stuff he was tweeting was just grossly offensive kind of jokes. He wasn't being hateful. He wasn't like in... Yeah. He wasn't encroaching on someone's freedoms. He was just making offensive jokes related to I, I, some dark I, I, topics. And, and he certainly didn't seem to be endorsing like wholly unacceptable opinions or, or, no, no, no. or casting hate at but anybody. I think, I think that, it, was the, it, was, it was the fact that the, the, the jokes were in very poor taste. But I think having a dark sense of humour can work in your favour for the Suicide Squad film, personally. Yeah, I think it could, yeah. And like I say, Margot Robbie really loves that character and she seems to have the, you know, this is her Deadpool, isn't it? Um, yeah. So if they can if they can just get the, the rest of the film right, who knows? Yeah, but ho- so, hopefully, so, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. So as you can see, there's a lot of films out and as such, it, it now becomes part of our our monthly, you know, life in film to try and get out and see something in the cinema. Uh, and as it turns out, although we went separately, because James and I don't don't live together and COVID uh, makes it harder for, for us to, to see each other all the time, um, 
uh, we both went to see the same film at different times, haven't we, mate? We both went to see A Quiet Place Part Two. Yeah, I went with my mum and my sister, and uh, did you go yourself? Or yeah, I just yeah, I picked a time when you know there was a late show and I could put the baby at bed and disappear off yeah, while yeah. my wife watched the baby. Yeah. Um. Okay. Um. Yeah. What did you What did you think of it? I thought it was very good. I mean, I had the same sort of views on it. Um. Uh. As as uh, a lot of people had, which said they're going to have to really pull something out here because the first film was great, didn't necessarily need a sequel, and the only way really is down from that first film. Yeah. Um, but when it's when it's a horror film and it's really good and really successful, a sequel's kind of inevitable, isn't it? So I think it was a case of uh, John Krasinski has said, uh, we have to, you know, we're going to do it, but we're going to try and do it as well as we possibly can. And I thought it was pretty good. I don't think it was, it was as good as the first one, but it, I, I thought it was... Uh, as as sequels to horror films go, I think it's one of the best ones. Um, yeah, I I think I really enjoyed a quiet, quiet place, but I think there was less flaws with this one. Um, for example, oh, interesting. You thought there were flaws in the first one, just stupid little things. Um, like for example, um, in the first one, that nail that's in the um, in the stair that makes it, that Emily Blunt stands on in the house. Mm-hmm. Like they've absolutely kitted that house out, even down in the basement. So the fact that that nail has only just become a problem for the climactic scene mm-hmm. in a, in the film is just a bit. Yeah, that, it, that, that, it, that it works. Me. It works very well dramatically in the sense of Chekhov's rifle, doesn't it? But yeah, it, you can. You know, you know, you know what? Now that you mention it, you're absolutely right. But I think it's one of those things that Hitchcock called this sort of thing a refrigerator film in which right. you enjoyed at the time and, and then later when you're kind of reaching into the fridge to, to get the milk out or something, you suddenly go, hang on, that doesn't stack up. But you get away with it because most people just enjoyed the film while it was on, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Because I, 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 now that you mention it, yeah, you're quite right. They should have sorted that <laughs> yeah, out a long time they ago. They just sorted out. And um, yeah. things like the 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 baby. Like, mm-hmm. These people are managing to survive an apocalypse, but they didn't think, oh, maybe we shouldn't get pregnant. You know what I mean? Yeah, That's I mean the thing is, I, I I was prepared to go with that because I mean it, dramatically it was true to the characters because they've lost a child. Uh, I, I don't think that's a spoiler because that happens so early in the first film that it would be, you know, no, it would be. Yeah, I didn't dislike the film, and, but, and life and life sometimes happens. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's that's that's a very particular plot point because that can be t- tied down into like you know babies can mm-hmm. happen when you want them when you don't necessarily want them or they aren't planned. Yeah, but the main one was obviously the nail making the entire situation absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the second film was really good. I thought it a really strong opening because it, it flashes back. If you remember the, the you know audience, if you remember. The uh, the first film kind of says day something or other. It's like day two hundred and eighty eight. So it's it's or three hundred and something. It's quite a long time after the um, the 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 crisis or apocalypse has happened, and, and it's you know drops you right into it. And in this one, the, they start this film with a flashback to day one when these creatures arrive for the first time, and it gives it's a real kind that of smash really good, bang yeah. opening. And it's it's very good because you know. I think it would have it wouldn't have worked as well if that had been the opening scene of the first film. Do you know what I mean? Because part of the uh, appeal of the first film was they drop you in the middle of it and then you you learn, you know why why the the film is is why it is. And then when you when when the creatures do start attacking based on sound, it has such surprise and shock value, which would all have been lost if, if you had that opening scene day one at the beginning. But I think it, it's a terrific kind of opening to to the first film. Um, they introduce a new character played by Killian Murphy, and he's very good. Um, the 
I thought they did a nice job with making uh, the deaf daughter Millicent, played by Millicent Simmons. I think is it Reagan or Regan? How you pronounce her uh, her name, her character name? Because they, don't really she, say, they don't really say names in the film to actually know how they pronounce it. So. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, so she's the she becomes the main protagonist in this film, and she's dealing with you know what kind of person she wants to be in a relationship with her father, and almost seeing how alike her father she is. Uh, it's a nice arc. Um, yeah, it was good. I think um, obviously you don't have as much. There's no element of surprise this time because you all know what, what what it's like. But I think I was on the edge of my seat at all the right times. I thought it was very good. I think obviously I care about the characters. I didn't think the emotional impact of the characters was quite as strong as the first one because without giving away too many spoilers of the first film, the family suffers a personal tragedy early on in the film and that has really affected all of them and it affects the daughter's relationship with her father, it affects the father's you know, uh, daily daily life, thinking about whether he, he, he could have done things differently and the daughter's thinking about whether he could... could could have done things differently and and that's so heartbreaking that seeing them deal with that as well as the crisis was really powerful they didn't quite have anything to match up to that this time but they still had a lot of emotional power for the characters and there's there's a bit where and again i don't want to give, give away too much plot but there's a bit where for reasons that will become apparent if you watch the film um that there's a there's a place where people aren't uh don't need to be quiet and 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 when when the person who, who sees that sees how um, uh, how weird that now feels, do you know what I mean? It's like people doing normal stuff seems weird now. Do you know what I mean? And that was actually quite an interesting thing to watch in our environment now because you've ever if ever seen you know a, a, a sports match being played where suddenly there's crowds again or seeing two people hug in the street because they're in the same bubble. Those are normal things, but they seem weird now in in the COVID pandemic. And I thought that was quite good. Um, I don't know what what you thought overall about the way the kind of the action played out with different different things happening in different places, mate. No, I liked it. It wasn't too jumpy. It wasn't too jarring. Um, yeah. The only the, the only criticism I have of this film, because I thought it was really good overall. The only kind of moment where I looked at it from a kind of you know pernickety kind of view was when Jimon Honsu's character stands. Uh, I don't want to give the spoiler away, but he he basically does something very stupid and. Yeah, the, it's, it's, it's the idiot this. plot. You would all the stuff that he then kind of does and, and talks about. He, he, you know, he could have done in a different way that wasn't so obviously stupid, yeah. right? And that, that's the only problem is like that, that's why I like this one more than the first one because they ironed out some of the stupidity. Because in the first one, um, you know, there the, were, the I, I suffer, you mean, av- the, avoidable things, right? The reason that they suffer you. the reason they suffer a personal tragedy in the first one is that they are really deep into this kind of post-apocalyptic world and. It's a massive spoiler. So, spoiler alert: if you're listening and don't want to, and you haven't seen the film, and you don't want to. It happens in like the first five minutes. Of the first, in the first film five... when we're talking about the sequel to it. So, I guess we we, we have yeah. to kind of have a bit of a moratorium yeah. on that. Big big spoiler. One of the, the the I think their youngest boy is his name's Bo picks up a a space rocket toy or has a space rocket toy in the uh, in this wee pharmacy, and his dad's like, no, 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 don't play with that because it will make a noise. And as opposed to just taking the toy off him or taking the batteries off him. They just yeah. let the kid keep a hold of it, um, and then he turns it on, and, and then he turns it on, and then the sound sensitive alien comes along and tears the boy to pieces. You don't see that; you just get it kind of cuts quickly. But that's what happens, and mm-hmm. you think, "Fuck me!" Like you guys are so smart that you thought to put sand all the way down to your house from the main town so they can't hear your footsteps, but you didn't think I'll take a really loud, super lo- loud um, Hasbro toy off of a of a young kid. You know, it was just stupid thing yeah. like that. Whereas they kind of ironed it out in this one. 
Yeah, yeah, they, the, the plot didn't rely as much on people doing things that someone with the sense to have survived that long in the apocalypse wouldn't be expected yeah. to do. But no, I thought... Yeah, I get you. The first you. one's good, but I actually like this one better. I thought it was really That's good. interesting. That's interesting. That's really... Yeah, that's good to hear. I have to say, it's always, you know, it's always a, a, a risk when there's a film you really like and they do a sequel when I'm, I'm sure that there's an element of John Krasinski going, I thought I did everything I, I needed to in the first film and then people drive a truckload of money up to his house and say come on make a sequel come on make a sequel and to be fair to him i think he's tried really hard and i think largely succeeded in coming up with a story that justified a sequel so yeah. fair play i thought it was i thought it was really good and it had a lot of the same you know tension and and, and excitement to, to to see so yeah good news good news the uh yeah, i'm not sure i think they might be pushing their luck for a part three which i hear is being made um I think what they're doing for a part three is they might actually, or they might be spinning off and doing the story somewhere else. But you know, um, um, we'll, we'll we'll see. It, third third sequels don't have a great record anyway, I, but we'll I, see. I, I've enjoyed the two they've made. I'd um, kind of like to see kind of what they did with Aliens and Alien have a more kind of action based one about how the army kind of try and deal with it. Um, that yeah, that would be interesting. Or the I mean, there's a couple of different ways they can go because I think one of the films they want to do is a spin off where it'll be some some other thing, some other some other place. But if they were going to take it take it up a notch for part three, the fact that in the first two films they have established a way to fight back, which which was found in the first film and started to get used more in the second, if they were going to have a, 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 a some sort of organised battle to fight back against the monsters, that that would be where they go, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. So yeah, we we saw something in the cinema. That's hopefully going to be a, a feature of things more and more going forward. Um, now, other than that, we had some New Year's resolutions that we made at the beginning of twenty twenty one, and each month we see how we're doing against those. Uh, yours, I believe, James was trying to get that balance because you know you love a good TV series, as do I. But try and watch a few more films as well. Uh-huh. Uh, how did you get on with that this month? Um, I watched the death of Stalin again. Oh, tremendous. I watched One Night in Miami again with my mum, and she really enjoyed it. Oh, oh very good. Um, what else? Um, let me go to my Netflix. I watched um, that Kevin Hart film, Fatherhood, which was actually quite good. All right. That, I mean, I, I I saw one review of that that wasn't very complimentary, but it was only one review. I couldn't call that the critical consensus. No, it's actually quite good. If you see what I mean. It was, it was a kind of, kind of feel-good story about something that's really, obviously, a really sad story. Basically, Kevin Hart plays a... a a dad who's, um, you know, his wife passes away during childbirth and he's got to raise a kid himself, but he, um, he's not really, he was probably, he was ho- kind of hoping that, his, the, not the hoping, but the the idea of the story is that the mum would have been a lot better at raising the baby because he's just, no, he's not prepared for it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really good. It's a really good, um, good film. I actually didn't mind it too much. Um, yeah. I mean, while we didn't like the upside that he was in largely because I think it was a very poor version of, of a film we like much better in Antu Shabla, I did think that Kevin Hart showed he could do a slightly more serious film. No, he is really good. Um, this in that a really performance. Well, it's a yeah. really well written no, film. There's a, a line in it where he says, if you, if you only had to have one parent, I wish it had been your mum because she was so much better at this stuff, which I thought was really, it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of, the sacrifices you want to do, you would do for your children to make sure that they have the best kind of life possible, which was um, a really nice. It was a really, it was actually a really nice film, and it's about him moving on and trying to meet someone yeah. new and trying to deal with you know raising a baby by yourself. Because mm-hmm. I think it was to highlight the fact that you know men maybe need to step up and look after um, 
you know, not step up, but you know, maybe get rid of that stereotype that women do all the uh, yeah, that that old fashioned definition of parental roles, work. right? But yeah, also, yeah, yeah. it's um, it's you know, it's good because he goes into a, a mother's clinic, not a mother's clinic, a new parents clinic, and it's all new mothers, and they say this is for new mothers, and he says no, it says new parents on the door, so it's good stuff like that, you know, mm. a bit more yeah, interesting yeah, inclusivity good. on both sides, and it was really good. Um, cool. I watched, I don't know if it counts, but I watched the Sir Alex Ferguson documentary. Okay. It's, um, it's, hard, it's hard these days because at this exact moment, you don't know whether that would be a cinema release because some documentaries do get released in cinemas, right? But that was very good um, Yeah, for anyone who likes football and wants to know about probably the best manager in sports ever. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, other than that, we um, started watching Loki, which is a TV show, but it's still tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have you watched uh, the, the second half of Lupin yet? No, I haven't. Lupin. I, I'm saving that as well. I, I'm, I'm, I can't. I can't decide whether I should go right back to the start and just binge on it one to ten, or, or just yeah. pick it up on five. I'm probably going to go back to the start and binge on it. No, it is really good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. So, yeah, that, that sounds like a that sounds like a successful month for fulfilling that resolution. Yeah, I had two. I had two resolutions. Um, one one was to watch an old sort of favorite film that you haven't seen in years. Um, which is just something I thought uh, at the beginning of the year, it occurred to me that we, James, you and I had talked about City of God in one of our previous podcast conversations. And I thought, yeah, that's a great film. And then it occurred to me how long it was since I'd watched it. So I've tried to do that more just because, hey, just, you know, watch some of those old great films again. And um, similar to some of the other ones I've done in, in, in previous months, I, I dig something off the shelf and, and put it by the telly to try and watch that. And I end up watching something else by accident, which meets the brief. <clears throat> uh, and this month that was Casablanca. Um, you know, I, I was I was thinking of something else to watch, and then I was flicking through the schedules and thought, "Well, Casablanca's starting in five minutes, right? Clear my schedule." Um, it was on BBC Four. It's also available on iPlayer till the end of the month, uh, folks. Till twenty sixth of July, I believe, if you want to watch it and you don't already have your own copy. Um, it's interesting because Casablanca is a very well known film in the sense that everyone knows it contains a classic romance between Humphrey Bogart and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Everyone remembers some of the great. Um, dialogue like of all the gin joints and all the world she walks into mine and he's looking at you kid and the uh the the, the, cl- the classic uh, line round up the usual suspects and the usual suspect line that people use now in many in many settings comes from this film um and you've probably seen clips of it in loads of film montages over and over but it, it's easy to forget when something is a classic and it's just on people's posters on, on the walls this is actually still a living breathing film which captures an extraordinary moment in in history and has some real power to it um, so I thought I'd just talk about it for, for the audience because although everyone knows Casablanca, they might know some of the might not know some of the uh, the background to it. Casablanca is based on an unproduced play written by some Americans who visited Europe in the 1930s and were shocked by the anti-Semitism and fascism they, they encountered fascism they encountered in Austria. Um, Warner Brothers picked it up and it was adapted into a screenplay by three Jewish writers who would have been highly aware of what was going on in Europe at the time. Uh, this writing process took place while America was still not involved in the war, despite desperate pleas for help from its European allies, and President Roosevelt was trying to convince con- Congress to agree to join the war. And it was released uh, towards the end of 1942 when America had joined the war, and it was just at the point the allies were about to try and retake Casablanca from Axis countries. So people were watching Casablanca in the cinemas while Casablanca was in the news. Um so while you might seem think of Casablanca as just the kind of old classic you watch on a rainy Sunday afternoon, there was a lot more than that going on when it came out. Um, and the setting of the film was really interesting. It's set in late 1941 before Pearl Harbor, so America's not in the war yet. 
Most of Europe's fallen to the Nazis, and France is partly occupied by German forces, partly governed by the Vichy regime, which is notorious for its collaboration with the Nazis, which it it nominally tried to do to keep some of France unoccupied by the Germans, but ended up being just as bad as the Germans, including rounding up Jews and sending them to, to death camps. Southern Morocco, where Casablanca is located at this time, is a French colony under Vichy control and has an uneasy relationship with the Nazis while trying to regain, retain some level of independence. The resistance to the Nazis is active in many countries across Europe, inspired by General de Gaulle's Free French. Refugees from Europe are arriving in their droves to Casablanca, trying to get a visa to neutral Portugal and from there to America. And all sorts of smugglers, black marketeers and corrupt officials are preying on these refugees while they sit stuck in limbo in Casablanca, waiting for a chance to escape. Now, the rest of the story is familiar, but what a terrific setting for a film. It's a fascinating idea about this kind of this um, demi-monde, this underworld um, in, in, in Casablanca in North Africa, this strange international city. Uh, and even though this film was all filmed on studio sets, it really conjured up that world. I'd actually like to see more of that. Um, it's a really powerful film, despite all the cliches, which only became cliches because this film came out. Um, there's a scene featuring the Marseillaise, which will give you goosebumps. Oh, my God. Just, if nothing else, to make you watch the film, if you haven't seen it and are thinking about whether to watch it, go on YouTube and, and, just, and just search for Casablanca Marseillaise scene and uh, watch that bit. You will be absolutely blown away by that and um this whole film is a call to arms to fight fascism and it was released right at the time when the world was in the grip of of a a fight for global survival against fascism um so it's a really a film worth revisiting i'm so glad i sat down to watch it because it's so much more than a classic old movie it is a great film that really really works even to this day what a wonderful film um and my, my other New Year's resolution uh, was to make 2021 the year of The Carpenter, in which I watch one of John Carpenter's best films each month in ascending order of their IMDb rating. Uh, we're hitting the second half of the year now, so we're getting some of the big names in John uh, Carpenter's filmography. And for July, it's one of his most famous films, Escape from New York. Now, I'm surprised it's not rated higher, actually, because coming out in July or being discussed in July means that it's only John Carpenter's sixth highest rated film on IMDb. Personally, I would have rated it more like top three or four, um, uh, but there it is. I don't think it's quite as highly rated as some of his uh, things like Halloween and so on, which we will get to. Um, it's uh, In fact, it only beats in the mouth of madness on a bit of a tiebreak because uh, in Escape from New York has more votes, um, but I, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite films, partly, I think, because it was one of the first films of John Carpenter I ever saw. Um but it's a classic John Carpenter film from his peak period, 1981. He's riding high after Halloween had been a big hit in 78. Um, he made The Fog straight after that, which was also a hit. Um, and then Escape from New York was next. Now, it almost didn't get made at all because Carpenter had a two-picture deal with an independent studio. And The Fog was the first film in that, which did quite well. So the studio was keen to make the second film. And Carpenter was actually working on a film called The Philadelphia Experiment, which he was writing but couldn't quite get the ending right. And the studio said, we can't wait, strike while the iron's hot, you're you're really successful at the moment, give us something now. So John Carpenter literally reached into his trunk of scripts he'd written before and and hadn't produced yet and dusted off Escape from New York, and and the rest is history. Um, So this is the first John Carpenter film I ever watched, and and I rented it on video. And the experience which I talked about on on a previous podcast of renting something from a video shop as a kid in the 80s meant you walked into the, the, the shop and there were loads of uh video cases sort of on the wall which displayed what the film was all about and they all had these kind of lurid images pro- promising all sorts of thrills and suspense 
Uh, and this is a classic version of that because the, 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 the cover, which is also the poster of Escape from New York, you can look at it online. It's ruined New York landmarks and the Statue of Liberty's head lying on the streets of Manhattan with Kurt Russell uh, with an eye patch, two support characters with him being pursued by an armed mob. That was everything I needed to know about this film. I wanted to watch it. And <laughs> there, are lo- there are a lot of films like that which, you know, w- weren't very, you know, back back then there were a lot of films which would have a very lively picture on the case, promising all sorts of, you know, illicit thrills for a young person like me, probably was too young to watch the film. Um, they didn't always deliver on what the cover promised you, but John Carpenter always did. John Carpenter's films always do what it says on the tin. And um, the opening of the film is classic. John Carpenter tells you all you need to know about the dystopian future awaiting us. Um, in the next kind of 15, 20 years from the time this film is being released, there's going to be a breakdown of law and order, which gets so severe that they decide to wall up the island of Manhattan mine the bridges and turn it into a giant maximum security prison where they just put in hundreds of thousands of of prisoners. Uh, Once you go in, you don't come out. America has pretty much been turned into like a a totalitarian dictatorship. A militarized police force guards the wall. Uh, In the opening minute of the film, you see a few prisoners uh, trying to escape across the river out of the prison on a raft at night. A police helicopter flies over, catches them in the searchlight, blows them out of the water. That's what we're faced with. War hero turned criminal Snake Plissken is being processed as a new prisoner. He's about to be dumped into Manhattan, having been caught um, trying to rob the Federal Reserve. He's kind of turned against America because he's so disillusioned about his experiences in in what is essentially a new global world war. Um, Overhead, a jet is being hijacked and flown into the prison's airspace. The jet turns out to be Air Force One and a radical resistance group to America's totalitarian government are making a statement to the world. They crash the plane into a building on Manhattan Island, which is scarily prophetic in itself. It kills everyone on board, but the president has ejected at the last minute an escape pod, lands in the prison island, and is kidnapped by a gang of inmates. The president, however, was on his way to a peace conference to try and stop the world war, which threatens to engulf civilization, and needs to be saved within 24 hours or it's all over. So Snake Plissken, whose life no longer means any, anything anyway because he's a convict, is recruited to go into the New York Island and save the president and return for a full pardon. Now, this is just the first 10 minutes of the film. It just says, wow, there you go, this whole new world. I was hooked from the beginning. It's, and and I, I think it still stands up, although it is very much of its time and its style and, and, uh, and, and approach. It's classic sci-fi and a limited budget. It's bigger than John Carpenter's previous budgets, but still stretching the boundaries. It's, full, it's packed full of ideas. Um, and it, the, the ideas hint at this wider world with just a few scenes or a quick, quick lines of dialogue. So you get the feeling that this whole world of, of, of this horrible future has been has been realized, but you only, you only see glimpses of it because they didn't have the budget to do it all. But they refer to a battle over Leningrad, which suggests that the Cold War has turned into a full-on global war threatening the world. It gives you a hint of the totalitarian government running America now, social breakdown, armed radicals hijacking Air Force One. It really creates this kind of bleak future world. And then Kurt Russell is the anti-hero snake. This is his breakout role. He's embittered by his experiences in war. He walks around with an eye patch, looking, you know, pissed off, you know, with a, with a toothpick between his teeth. You know, shades of Clint Eastwood in his performance. Uh, Lee Van Cleef plays the ruthless police chief who sends him in. There's some great characters in the prison population inside the island, Ernest Borgnine, Isaac Hayes, who played Shaft, Sorry, he played the theme tune to Shaft, sorry. Adrian Barbeau and Harry Dean Stanton. And Donald Pleasance from the Halloween films plays the president in need of, Rask- uh, in need of rescue. 
Now, none of this looks all that extraordinary today because this has been a hugely influential film and been copied so many times, but it really pushed the, the boundaries of action sci-fi at the time when it came out. In fact, people were taken back by the kind of bleak nihilisms. So John Carpenter's films had often had a certain element of humour to them, and so does this, but this was really, this was quite bleak. It reflected a lot of the fears and concerns of the time about rising crime, cities falling apart, and was definitely written by, you know, an American who was, you know, very disillusioned with his government you know in the 70s with Watergate and everything else people were sick of their government and, and and a lot of the films got made kind of reflected that and this is definitely now there it's been superseded and sort of overtaken by modern action films now especially sound and editing but it's still a great suspense film uh, and in fact a lot of its cues and kind of creative choices are more reminiscent of, of horror films which is unsurprising given it's John Carpenter but there's a scene early on when night has fallen and these demented people start rising up from the sewers under the prison, coming up through the manholes, bursting in and killing anyone left out of the street at night. And it's, wow, we, this is a dark place, right? It also features one of the most famous John Carpenter scores. Um, after this, his music becomes more integrated into the actual film. But back then, his music was almost like a character in the film, like Halloween and Assault on Precinct 13, where the music really stands out. Um so it's a lovely, really gritty, dark film with some hit, quite sudden and violent action. Uh, and, you know, it's got all of John Carpenter's classic style that you love. This is, I mean, this is classic John Carpenter. This is the sort of film you could say, if you're trying to get someone else into John Carpenter, this is one of the first films you might want to get them to watch, either this or Halloween or Assault on Precinct 13. It's one of the first ones to kind of give people. And it's got a really cool kind of bleak, open-ended sort of ending to the film. And it's the first time I'd ever seen that, which I loved. Um in John Carpenter's kind of filmography, this is you know one of his you know highest points. The film was a hit. He went on from here to do to do a big budget film with Universal, which was the thing. Um, Kurt Russell became a star and did several more films with John Carpenter. This film's been a huge influence on modern action sci-fi, as has the music. Um, Kurt Russell's character Snake Plissken has inspired so many other anti-hero characters since then, uh, including the main character in Metal Gear Solid, the video game. It inspired a sequel 15 years later, which isn't very good and hasn't made it into the top 12 um, for this year. Um, but it's a really good film, which I, I thoroughly recommend. It's one of those films, you, it's one of the, like I say, it's one of the breakout John Carpenter films. This is one of the classic ones you would say, oh, you haven't heard of John Carpenter? Watch this. It's also got an iconic future vision of New York, which is really striking. And uh, it's inspired the return of my impromptu top 10s, which we didn't do last month. This month, uh, inspired by Escape from New York, we're doing uh, the top 10 other futuristic depictions of New York City, other than this one. Not all of them are the main plot of the film, and not all of them are great films, but they do contain visually striking or impressive visions of what New York might be like in the future. So in no particular order, that impromptu top 10 includes Planet of the Apes, spoiler alert, AI, artificial intelligence, uh, Soylent Green, Dread, Oblivion, Heavy Metal, the Fifth Element, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, I Am Legend, and Metropolis. And as I say, some of those films are Stone Cold classics. Some of them are, are less kind of uh, well-appreciated or well-known, but they all include a really interesting vision of, of future New York, which is worth checking out. So that's the, the Year of the Carpenter entry for July. Next month, we're doing They Live, another John Carpenter from his classic period. Um, and I'm looking forward to that, but that's all for this month. And that's all I'll round up, unless you've got anything else, mate. No, I was just I was letting you do your thing. That was uh, thank you very much, mate. Nice and uh, nice and detailed. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of interesting films from German submarine epic Das Boot to modern French classic Antouchable. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from a steady stream of audience recommendations, including Wages of Fear, Inherent Vice, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, The Constant Gardener, City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, Walk the Line, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, No Way Out, Mississippi Burning and Sea of Love. This month we're looking at an Oscar-winning film from 2005 with a story of corruption and conspiracy torn from the headlines, which I bought on DVD over a decade ago and never got around to watching. Until now. For episode 15, our classic and recommended film is The Constant Gardener. So this is my recommendation. I hadn't seen it. Um, I'd heard good things about it when it came out in the 2000s. I bought the DVD Sight Unseen. I think it was part of a multi-buy deal in a shop, which gives you an idea of how long ago it was. I actually bought the bought the DVD over the counter in a, in a physical shop on the street. Uh-huh. Um, it's so old um, that when you turn the video on, it's got that uh, that that scary looking "Don't Pirate uh, Films." You wouldn't uh, steal add, a baby. Yeah, with this with this with the aggressive dance music. That's how old this this DVD is, and it was still in the cellophane. Um, you hadn't seen it before, James, um, so we just kind of checked it out and watched it, so so we'd see what we thought of it. Uh, yeah, I agree. I can't remember the listener's name, but I agree with what he kind of said. I thought it was a really interesting kind of concept because we all know that these big companies, whether they're drug companies like um, or any large, massive conglomerate, we all know that they're up to nonsense. And we all that they're not up to no good. And I thought looking at that from like a more you know how it affects the little guy kind of perspective was a really interesting mm-hmm. uh, concept, and it was it highlighted a lot of problems, especially you know in Africa with AIDS and. Uh, is it tuberculosis is the, the next yeah. epidemic, ironically. Um, mm. But it was it started off really strongly, and I really enjoyed it was uh, the kind of first hour of it. But as soon as – I think the, the problem I have with it is that his – I would have liked to have seen uh, more of Rachel Vice maybe as a leading role instead of a supporting role, because I know she won the mm. Best Supporting Actress for it. But the problem is as soon as she passes – Spoiler alert! In this film, her yeah, no, it's it's part of the story that she dies early on. I mean, it's yeah. the first scene of the movie, so her, I, I think we've got we've got to address that in talking about the film. His his wife dies, and her um, doctor pal, not Ray Fiennes, who's her husband, her doctor pal Arnold, he's strung up and tortured, and um, um, yeah. he's left. He's he's crucified and killed himself. Mm-hmm. And after that, I kind of thought, well. Now Ray Fiennes is going to die as well because he, as as his as the kind of devoted husband that he is, he decides that you well I'm going to investigate what happened to my um to my wife and that's that's kind of what happens and he was like the more he digs into it the more he kind of gets warnings that he should just leave it alone because the big pharma companies don't want him poking his nose around mm-hmm. like his wife was doing <laughs> yeah. that's why she got killed. But from that, I just thought, well, he's going to die, and I had I had no interest in the film. It was uh, if they hadn't done as many flashbacks, and maybe seen more of Rachel Weisz as a leading actress, um, because it was it was nice to see you know her role as like she plays this really sweet but kind of mm-hmm. fierce woman at the same time she's a very you know strong 
journalistic kind of woman. That was that was nice to see, and you know, you see her develop a relationship with Ray Fiennes, and you kind of see that she actually decides to basically kind of, she kind of manipulates um, Danny Houston's character to try and get information out of him because yeah. he's he's high up in the ball, yeah. in the foreign office, and it's nice seeing a manipulative in her manipulative side as a as a character. But for me, as soon as as soon as her character died, it was oh yeah, right. Well, that's it then. You're right. She's a very interesting character, and what 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 kind of character is is so important to the film. Um, but they've made a specific choice, and in fact, John Le Carre made the choice because that's how that's how the the book is. Um, that if um, I think you and, and and some other people I think have found that said, well, with a, with about an hour to go, it, there's there's I don't I, I don't think they 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 tried to make anything that happens in the last kind of second half of the film, as it were, much of a surprise. Um, which um, I think what 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 you did and I and I understand, mate, is to go okay. Well, I'm on board with what you're trying to say. Um, you know, I get I get what you're saying about you know Africa and, and pharmaceutical companies and, and, and corruption and, and what's happened. But it's almost like the film's done now, and we're just waiting for it to end. I, I see where you're coming from, and other people seem to have had a similar similar view of yeah, it. Um, it just fired a shot too early, personally. Yeah, and, yeah, and there was a specific choice to do that, and and that's partly because that's ha- partly what John Carry John Carry was trying to do with the story, which you know that obviously in a, in a book and with uh, or, or you know, that can, might play out differently, and, and and it could be. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we how, would this have been more of a surprise to us what corruption was going on in the British government and and big pharma in the mid two thousands would would it have been more of a surprise when it came out? I don't know because none of us watched it at the time. As you say, even though I think I, I, I did like the film more than you, and I, I really you know I, I enjoyed it all the way yeah. through, I still wasn't surprised by anything I saw in the film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was um, just the, the. It just kind of petered out. It did have an. It ended strongly with the whole um, exposing mm-hmm. um, Bill Nye's characters. You know, behind it all at the at the funeral, yeah. kind of explosive, kind of yeah. finale in that sense, which was which was good. I didn't dislike the film, but I, as soon as the the protagonist's wife dies twenty minutes into the film, and this the plot of the story is he's going to investigate what happens to his wife. You just know that it's not going to. Structurally, the way it plays out is it, it, it's, it, some people are going to go. Well, there's well, you, yeah. You, you kind of know everything. You kind of know everything there is about the story. About with about an maybe forty minutes to go, and then the remaining forty minutes are about Ray finds coming to terms with what's happened and, and and addressing whether he could have done more for his wife or you know ha, you know because he knows that the government's failed or he knows that the the system has failed her. And he's he's coming to terms with whether he's failed her personally as well, and what he should do about that. Which is, you know, like, like I say, in in a novel, you can have a, a lot of a lot of internal dialogue of the main character while that happens in the film. I still think they did a very good job of telling that story. Um, and as I say, it could have it could have been had more it could have had more impact if I'd watched it nearer the time. Part of my delay watching it is around that time I also bought the original novel. The film is based on by John Le Carre. And for some reason, I just couldn't get into the novel. I, I used to struggle with John Le Carre books, which really pained me because his stuff should be right up my street. He's you know one of the one of the foremost writers of, of spy fiction initially, and he used to be a spy himself. Um, and when you read about his books and you read about him, I share his worldview on so many things. So it, it really pissed me off that I couldn't get into this book. I thought, why am I not getting into John Le Carre? I eventually sort of cracked it with John Le Carre, um, but but by that time I'd lost the book in a house move for fuck's sake, and um, and hadn't seen the film in years. And I thought, oh, look, let's just watch the movie now, you know? Yeah, um, no, I get you. In terms of background, John Le Carre, um, he died uh, late last year. 
Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, you know, he lived a long time. He was born in 1931. He was initially a writer uh, just of pure spy fiction, but he expanded into political thrillers like with an international flavor like this one. He's most famous for the George Smiley novels, including Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was recently adapted into a film. Loads of his books have been adapted for the large and small screen, including The Little Drummer Girl, The Tailor of Panama, A Most Wanted Man, and The Night Manager, quite famously. Um, he drew on his own experience for his spy novels because before he um, was a writer, he was a spy for MI5 and then MI6. He was posted abroad uh, undercover, uh, posing as a foreign office diplomat. And interestingly enough, he started writing novels under the pen name John le Carre. His real name is David Cornwell. And some of his early books were published while he was still working for MI6, and he had to have them signed off by the government, whether he could publish them or not. Um, eventually, the writing career took off, and he retired from the espionage business. Um the Constant Garden is a novel he wrote in 2001 about corrupt governments covering up for greedy and unscrupulous um, pharmaceutical companies and the deaths they cause. Definitely in the latter part of John Carrey's career, although he did still do spy novels, a lot more of his novels are kind of international dramas and thrillers about corruption and the system screwing people over, and he's pretty passionate about that. This is inspired by real cases, including one involving Pfizer in Nigeria in the 1990s. Um, and, you know, what John Carey really wanted to do was ruthlessly point out the corruption, moral bankruptcy of governments, individual politicians, multinational corporations. So he just, you know, he really, he does have a message in, the, in this story. Um, the success of the book and Hollywood's love of John Carey led to it being adapted into a film. Um, it's directed by Fernando Moraes, whose previous film to this was The Amazing City of God, which brought him international attention. He hasn't had a particularly stellar career since these two films, despite their success, although he did direct The Two Popes recently, which you quite like, James. Did he do that? Yeah, he directed The really Two good. Popes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to be honest... It's, it's interesting. He, he, com he comes out in that period of the early 2000s when all the best directors seem to be coming from South and Central America, Del Toro, Inaritu, Alfonso Cuaron, and he did City of God, which seemed to be part of that kind of massive kind of explosion of the sort of new wave of South American films. He hasn't had the career those guys have had. Oh, I didn't know. But to be honest, with the two pups, I didn't think the direction of the film was what made it good. It was just that Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price were excellent. Yeah, um, I mean, sometimes a good director just gets out of the way maybe, and lets the actors do maybe, it. Maybe, but, but yeah. the, um, the Two Popes was very good. Um, seems mm -hmm. like he knows how to pick a good storyline to mm -hmm. to pick. Obviously, uh, is he from Brazil? Yes, he is, yeah. So, obviously, City of God's very close to home. That's a very personal mm -hmm. project for him, whereas Constant Gardener and Two Popes are two totally different kind of films, but it's... Uh, yeah, that, that's that's when he's, he's sort of trying to break out internationally, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but no, it was... Um, I didn't realise I really enjoyed The Two Popes. It's not that I didn't enjoy this. It's a very bleak film to say that you enjoyed it because it is very bleak. Yeah, I know. Yeah. some really horrible things that are going on in the world, especially with yeah, big I mean, pharma companies. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've covered the story, James. You know, essentially, uh, Ray Fiennes, it starts focusing on Ray Fiennes. He's a mid-level British diplomat. He's, um, his wife happens to be an activist for Amnesty, Rachel Weisz. He's on a posting in Kenya, and then all the events that you describe happen. She She's essentially murdered quite brutally raped and murdered um, while she's investigating some sort of uh, scandal, which doesn't just include pharmaceutical companies, it also includes uh, you know, British, the British government and possibly other governments. Um, he's, he's portrayed as this kind of very timid guy who focuses on his gardening and flowers rather than kind of you know, having confrontations with, with the rest of the world, hence the title of the, the, the book and the film. Um, and, you know, I think 
John le Carre is kind of he's placed himself in uh, in the story as this kind of author. I mean, he, he did work for the Foreign Office or posed as a member of the Foreign Office when he was when he was a young man. So he's kind of placed himself in that setting. He's kind of we're looking through his eyes, going, "This woman has been let down. She was trying to find the truth. She was trying to help people." And there's some pretty grim, you know, slums and uh, horrible experiences that that people are going through that this film shines a light on. I have to say that one of the things I think got me through all the way to the end of the film, even though the story doesn't, as you say, it doesn't play out with a big surprise at the end or anything, is the righteous anger at what's going on and the kind of really powerful kind of uh, scenes of like the ghetto and these, you know, desperate people that uh, Ray finds encounters when he goes along there. And and I thought for that, at least, the film was very powerful. Um, The film itself did quite well, $25 million budget, $82 million box office, so reasonable success. Nominated for four Oscars, uh, winning one for Rachel Weisz's supporting actress, so it did quite well. Um, It's interesting that after the film was made, the director, Fernando Moreas, who we talked about, the stars of the film, and John le Carre himself, helped set up a trust for the inhabitants of the Nigerian slums where they filmed on location because they were so affected by the conditions they were living in. So far, that trust has enabled lots of children there to go to school. It's brought clean water to a lot of neighbourhoods, um, you know, things most of us take for granted in our daily lives. So at the very least, what we can say about this film was that it uh, it, it it brought to international attention some things that people need to know about and helped some people in need. So at the very least, it, it, it's a film um, uh, by people with the right intentions and, and it ended up doing some good. Um the film's got much more steady pace than City of God, hasn't it? But it's you can see Morales' style in this, you know, unlike The Two Popes where you didn't realise it was him directing at all. In this, you can see it's the same guy. The way it's edited, the, the way the the way the camera follows them through the slums it is it is reminiscent of City of God in that way, although it doesn't it doesn't have the same kind of sheer kind of pace and, and flair of that film, I would say. It's much more steady and deliberate. Um but yeah, I mean, I think I think I enjoyed it more than you, mate. Um, it made me very angry, which was clearly the intention. Um, and uh, that's uh, that. You know, that I mean, I, I'm certainly glad I watched it, and I'm certainly glad this film brought all these issues to light. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. It's not that I disliked. I just I kind of knew what was happening, and after that, I yeah. was kind of like, ah, oh, well. Uh, this, yeah, it's what, it's this it's, it's definitely a case of John Le Carre trying to make his point. Um, he, uh, the, I don't know if you stayed all the way to the end of the credits, but instead of the normal, this is a work of fiction, there's a personal note from John le Carre, which is reproduced from what he wrote in, uh, uh, as a foreword to the novel. It says, this is a work of fiction, but compared to the real incidents I found out in my research, this story was as tame as a holiday postcard. Um, right. So John le Carre is really fucking on a mission in this. He's He was saying, these bastards are doing this and worse. Yeah, it's a very angry film. It's a yeah, big, yeah, you can it's tell got a lot of anger in it, yeah. And having said that, there's an article he wrote about the film, which which I thought was really really interesting. I thought would be worth kind of mentioning. Um, uh, he, he wrote in in an article. I learned, for instance, of how big farmer in the United States had persuaded the State Department to threaten poor companies' governments with trade sanctions in order to prevent them from making their own cheap forms of the patented life saving drugs, which could ease the agony of the 35 million men, women, and children in the third world who are HIV HIV positive, 80 percent of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. In pharma jargon, these patent-free drugs are called generic. Big Pharma likes to trash them, insisting they are unsafe and carelessly administered. Practice shows that they are neither. They simply save the same lives that Big Pharma could save, but at a fraction of the cost. Big Pharma did not even invent these life-saving drugs that they have patented and arbitrarily overpriced. Incidentally, antiretrovirals were for the most part discovered by publicly funded US research projects into other diseases and only later entrusted to pharmaceutical companies for marketing and exploitation. 
Once the farmers had the patent, they charged whatever they thought an AIDS desperate Western market could stand, $12,000 to $15,000 a year for compounds that, that only cost a few hundred dollars to make. Thus, a price tag was attached and the Western world by and large fell for it. Nobody said it was a massive confidence trick. Nobody remarked that while Africa has 80% of the world's AIDS patients, it only comprises 1% of big farmers' market, so they're left to die. Um, which isn't in the isn't explicitly in the film, but I think that's what John Carey is trying to say, and that I think it's worth calling it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I mean that that's uh, that's uh, the Constant Gardener. It's a good example of Hollywood liking to tell John Carey stories. Um, not everything in a novel works as well on screen um, uh, as as it does on the original page, um, but uh, John John Carey always tells stories that are worth telling. No, no, I would say watch this film. It's just it's don't expect it to be all twisty and stuff like that. It's very that, much that's linear. right. It's yeah. it's a different. It's 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 kind of about it's kind of about a man coming to terms of what's happened rather than surprising you with the story of what's happened. Yeah. yeah. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we bring you another example of when two films came out in the same year with a similar premise and one of them did not get as much attention as the other. Our hidden gem for episode 15 is Neil Berger's The Illusionist. So James, th- this was my suggestion, and I think what's coming out in these hidden gem films is that you know films are hidden gems for a reason. If they were universally liked, um, they wouldn't be hidden gems, right? Um, so we have to preface this by saying um, films on our hidden gem uh, feature they come highly recommended, uh, but not always by both of us. Um, and I think it's interesting that often we discuss films that not all of us not you know, we didn't both like. Uh, as yeah, much think, the, as the other and this is one of those cases yeah the, i mean the hidden gem list is like sometimes it's a film that nobody's heard of because it's a french film or it's a it's a korean film or it's something like that that we haven't seen um, yeah. whereas some of them are some people liked them and some people hated it and therefore some people saw it not everyone saw it whereas everyone's seen star wars everyone's seen marvel and all that kind of thing whereas this film sh- it came out in the same year as um the Prestige, which is one of my favourite films. It's excellent the way it uh, tells the story of two rival magicians driving, well, one of them going almost completely insane because of um, the other's tricks and, you know, to the point where he's going um, to Nikola Tesla to build a machine to understand how he does a certain um, does a certain trick and going all, almost to the, like the realms of, you know, wizardry to try mm-hmm. and beat um his rival magician who's using as something as simple as a twin brother you know he's not yep. using he's not going above and beyond and it drives um Hugh Jackman mad I loved it I thought it was excellent although I th- the reason I like the prestige isn't for David Bowie because David Bowie is a pedophile and I just want to put that on record <laughs> he was dating what was it a 14 year old a 15 year old when he was about in his mid-20s like 30s something along those lines yeah David Bowie's a pedophile and yeah Back, back to it, um, when it came to The Illusionist, which um, it was the first time I'd seen it, um, I didn't like it as much as The Prestige. It felt like a kind of, it just kind of felt like like an Agatha Christie, not an, Ag- yeah, an Agatha Christie kind of Poirot novel, but with magicians and stuff like that. It was just... Uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's safe to say that w- what's happened is is that it's it's a pure coincidence that these, these two films come from 
original stories that were written at, at different times yeah. with different narrative intentions. And uh, two people just happened at roughly the same time to be adapting stories that they found in light that happened to be based on a similar premise, which is um, stage magicians or a stage magician uh, in the late 19th century. And I think they've, they've done very different things with the story. And I think uh, you you love The Prestige. I, I like it, but I don't love it. Um, uh, and... and and I think this is purely a matter of taste because what I really love about this film is it's it's I really I really like Ed Norton, Edward Norton. I, I really love his films. Um, it's also set, although it's set in the same time period roughly as the as the Prestige. It's set in a different place. The Prestige takes place mostly in uh, in Victorian London or late Victorian London, uh, with some activity or part of the story taking place in America. Uh, the, the Illusionist takes place in 1899 to 1900 kind of thing in the last days of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Vienna, which is a, a, a period and place I'm really fascinated by, and you don't get many films about. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of already leaning towards one film rather than the other because of the setting and because of who's in it. If you see what I mean, um, and the film, the, 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 they're not really the same film. It's you know, and I, I agree with the person who said the two films aren't apples and apples. It just so happened because two films about a stage magician came out in the same year. They they yeah, sort of get mentioned together, so they're obviously going to get compared. But if I, yeah, even I, if I, I wasn't I, to compare it, sorry, to the Prestige, because I don't. In the Prestige, it's not actually the 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 magic that or the the illusions that. Um, uh, you enjoy it's just the the, t- the rivalry and it's the, the rivalry and the obsession, isn't it? Yeah, and the, the this, is, this is about this is about something different. This Whereas is about this was just rubbish. It was just like I thought Rufus Sewell was quite good. I, th- I agreed that Paul Giamatti was probably the best thing in it, but I just I, I couldn't be arsed with it. It was it was a very soppy love story, and it was yeah. <sighs> I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter of this film, and I, you know, I, I respectfully disagree. I thought it was terrific, but I think what it, what it has is it has a particular kind of narrative, which if you don't buy into it, the rest of the film's not going to do anything for you. What what this film is about is while it's partly about a love story, it's about a person who was born into the wrong social class and possibly the wrong religion. It's it's hinted at um, that he's that he's Jewish, and he lives in a society where you have a, an emperor in charge who has you know power over everyone and his his worthless, uh, you know, aristocratic offspring and, and, and relatives can w- run around, you know, the empire doing what they like. Uh, and it takes the one thing he loves most in the world away from him and he, and he fights back against that. Um, and a lot of what the film is about is, well, it is about a love story between him and Jessica Biel's character. It's about a someone transgressing against the social order in a way which... It's done in a, in quite a quiet way a lot a lot of the time. Although you know the the streets do start you know end up in uprising at one point, but it's 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 not done in a in a very big way in that sense, which some people I don't think you know have found a little bit too low key for its own good. But there are moments which which have a, a great deal of tension and intensity because of the tour it's trying to do. But if you if you're not if you don't like the original premise, or you find the whole love story a bit too soppy, I can see why it wouldn't do anything for you. For the for the sake of the of the audience, let's let's um, let lay out the background. The film opens in 1900 in Vienna, the last days of, as I said, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Eisenheim, the illusionist of the story, is performing a show, which in this opening scene we don't entirely see, but the audience is shouting things at the stage like "Who killed you?" which suggests it's got something to do with a dead person being shown on stage somehow. The police shut down the performance and arrest Eisenheim for disturbing public order and threatening the empire. 
uh, and the policeman is acting on the orders of Crown Prince Leopold, the son and heir of the Emperor of Austria. Edward Norton plays the uh, the illusionist Eisenheim. Paul Giamatti is the policeman, uh, you know, sort of a chief inspector um, who has ambitions to be the uh, police chief or even the mayor. And um, uh, Crown Prince Leopold is played by Rufus Sewell. We then flash back to Eisenheim as a child. Um, he's born Edward Abramovich, so it suggests that he's he's Jewish, which is not a social class which gets on back then. And he's from a modest family, but because his dad's a cabinet maker who makes some furniture for the Duke, he, he meets the Duke's daughter, Duchess Sophie. Um, they're socially not meant to be, right? But they become childhood sweethearts, and he makes her a locket, which can be secretly changed in shape from a, an oblong into a heart. So it's a, a, it's a, it's a secret romance from the beginning. They're forced apart because, you know, she's not meant to have relationships with the common people and he leaves. Um, a lot of stories spring up about what he did when he when, when he left, some more supernatural than others, you know, a lot of tall tales. Um, but 15 years later, he returns to Vienna as Eisenheim the Illusionist. And he performs tricks that seem almost supernatural. He has this unbelievable ability to, to do stage illusions at a time when people love stage illusionists and also believed very strongly in the supernatural. Um, he becomes a big success and... He comes into contact with the crown prince uh, and sees that Duchess Sophie is uh, intended to to marry the crown prince, even though they're not engaged. And Eisenheim decides he's going to do something about that and win her back. And the rest of it is a plot in which they rekindle their relationship. Uh, the crown prince has a reputation for being brutal and cruel and possibly even having murdered one of his previous uh, uh, lovers. Um, and what follows is a tale of political intrigue, murder, and revenge. And Eisenheim's illusions change from these uh, amazing kind of tricks like making a, a tree grow out of nothing into summoning the dead to the stage where the ghosts speak and, and, and answer audience questions. Uh, uh, and people uh, believe maybe that he's genuinely raising the dead. Um, and that turns into a plot about potential murder and uh, who's responsible for the murder. And he he's also accused of, of you know, threatening to bring down the empire. Um, so it's a, it's a different story to the prestige. It's, it's all, it's, it's very much about class and social standing uh, and uh, an empire, which if you know, the historical context is on the verge of falling because it doesn't want to be a democracy uh, and, you know, national you know, elements of its empire are, are pulling it apart. Um, that, it's definitely done on a smaller scale to the prestige. Sorry, it's definitely done on a smaller scale than the prestige. Um, he, there's a really interesting scene where Eisenheim is giving a private performance to the crown prince and his his court, and he he turns the sword into a kind of Excalibur, which just it's standing up on its end on the, on the floor, and and different people try and lift it, and they say only the worthy person can lift this sword and, and be emperor one day. And Crown Prince Leopold is really nervous about doing this because he knows that Eisenheim doesn't like him. And he knows that if he tries to lift the sword and can't lift it, he's going to be embarrassed in front of him. And if he gets embarrassed in front of Eisenheim, he's probably going to have Eisenheim disappeared for this. So there's a, it's a very different confrontation. It's much more low key, but whole lives, you know, and possibly whole empires do depend on it. Um, uh, so thematically, they have different, um, different intentions. And the illusionist, as you say, it has a it has a murder plot and it has a big sort of twist ending. Um, and again, I, I thought it was brilliant. And um, but I know that you know from some of our uh, from our correspondence from you, James, that it, it's not for everyone. Not not everyone got uh, not everyone enjoyed the sort of the slightly quieter like tone to this film. And, and you said you found Edward Norton a bit um, um, uh, almost a bit too reserved for his own good in, in his performance. Not even reserved in his own good. He was just a bit of a non-event in the film. It was. 
I just I don't I don't know if it's just a combination of I watched these films during an eight day in a row spell at work, so trying to find the time to watch these when I've been awake since about quarter past four in the morning. But no, it was I couldn't be bothered with it. It was as soon as it was just a, you know conjuring up spirits and like that. I think that's the problem I have with it is that as much as I didn't want to follow the tricks and I didn't pay too much attention to the tricks and the prestige, is that the prestige was this is how we're doing these tricks and they they obviously try and delve into a little bit into the kind of realm of sci-fi by having Nikola Tesla make a machine that can mm. you know clone bodies but down to it it's down to the simplicity of it all oh, how do you do a bullet catch okay how do you do the thing with the the bird in the cage making it disappear mm-hmm. how do you do uh, this how do you do the uh, disappearing man and then reappearing man kind of thing like how, that stuff was cool whereas this it was just kind of like oh yeah he just conjures up illusions like, yeah, well, the, uh, there is this, there is a scene, quite a pivotal scene, which I don't want to talk too much about for those people who who, who do feel like going to watch the film, um, where the the notes or the diagrams or the 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 secret information of Eisenheim the Illusionist and how he does his tricks are, are read and found, and there's a, a flashback scene which is deliberately left open ended as to exactly how he pulls off the tricks and 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 what he does in the story to the Crown Prince. Um, in which all of these, uh, all of these illusions, you know, none of them. My, my read of it is that none of them are actually supernatural. Because what's really interesting is that um, all of these tricks are based on real tricks that took place uh, uh, that, with illusionists at the time. The orange tree growing out of the ground and the supposing summoning of the dead are all tricks that illusionists did at that time with various um, various techniques um, that you some of which you couldn't do nowadays because a lot of it depended on kind of the, the kind of low candle or lamp lighting of, of theatres back then. But they were all um, – but as you say, it doesn't go into the, the the magician's craft the way the prestige does. So it's left a lot more open-ended how he does the tricks. So, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from on that. Um, in, in terms of um, what I what I think is good about the film, it definitely shows a time and place in history, the turn of century Central Europe, which is very interesting for those people to do that. It contains some uh, amazing real-life tricks that actually were used back then. So if you're interested in the history of, sort of stage magic, it's, it's got that as well. I thought the cinematography was beautiful, and, it, and that was nominated for an Oscar. Um, they did some very well-done sepia colouring of the flashbacks to make it look like a, an idealised past, and the way the, f- the city of Vienna is, is photographed and the countryside is photographed is absolutely beautiful. Um, it has a score by Philip Glass, one of the leading composers of the 20th century. He hasn't done all that much film music, so it's definitely worth uh, watching for that. Um, and, uh, I mean, one sort of film fact about the way this was done is that um, the illusionist Ricky Jay, who's also an occasional actor in films, he um, he he consulted on uh, both films and trained the actors in both films on how to do their tricks. So that's the only kind of real link between the illusionists and the prestiges that Ricky Jay supported both of them. As I say, this is a very different take on the idea of a stage magician. Um, I think it's I think it's amazing. James wasn't keen, um, but if you are interested in that period of history and 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 the, the, some of the magic tricks that were done at that time. Um, it gives you something very different to the prestige. And, you know, as I say, it won't be for everyone, but I, I still think it's worth checking out. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the big screen. 
We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month, we're looking at a film that aimed to elevate the Hong Kong martial arts genre to new heights, capitalise on the newfound megastardom of its director and star, and transform the way in which East Asian people and their philosophies are seen by the rest of the world. The one that got away for episode 15 is Bruce Lee's The Game of Death. So initially, James, this is all from such a long time ago. Bruce Lee died, you know, I think just about before I was born, let alone before you were born. Um, and these martial arts films of that time are, you know, very old fashioned compared to martial arts, the way it's shown in cinema today. Um, so from your point of view, from an almost historical point of view, what's your kind of, you know, background and, and, and relationship to Bruce Lee and his films? Um, I don't think I've actually ever seen a Bruce Lee film. That's interesting. You've probably seen films influenced by Bruce Lee, but not the films themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just I don't think I have. Um, I I think there's a lot of hype around Bruce Lee, um, and he's given this kind of immortal status for creating his own martial art and uh, you know being you know this lethal artist. But um, when I did a bit of reading in the guy, he he basically never fought anyone because his back was fucked, and he was on a lot of you know mental painkillers. Um, because his back was fucked, and I'm pretty sure that's what killed him. There is a, a the 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 autopsy that was carried out, the official coroner's report that was carried out about Bruce Lee's death did pinpoint the medication he was on for his injury as the cause. Um, although there are other theories, including conspiracy theories, about why he died, but I mean, the yeah. official and most likely cause is exactly as you described, mate. Yeah, yeah, he was found with equagesic in his system, which is aspirin. And is and is known known to be to cause potentially lethal allergic reactions in some people. So, um, yeah. So he never actually fought many people because of his back pain. So I I never really got into the whole hype about Bruce Lee being this immortal kind of god that everyone seemed to have. And I'm not trying to slight the guy because he's obviously he's he was a very important person in the 20th century for you know making martial art films accessible to cinema. Um, but there's people that you know talk about Bruce Lee being but this guy who could batter anyone with his one inch punch and things like that. And I've I've got two pals, Rory and Colin, are both former prison officers who could batter Bruce Lee without thinking about it. You know what I mean? And they're just two massive, enormous Chernobyl babies from Scotland. Um, so, yeah, I've never really been into that whole Bruce Lee thing of him being this kind of, you know, this almost deity in the martial arts scene. Um, I'd personally much rather watch uh, a Jet Li film or a Jackie Chan film. I yeah, love I mean, Hero, and, I love and even Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and, and any. I mean, Jackie Chan's films are all excellent, and he's a guy who I could watch forever. And I was really sad when he started to slow down making films and, until he made a, that it, film with Jerry Adams. It, it's have interesting. That? That, Sorry, side note: Have you seen that The Foreigner? Uh, no, we talked about it. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd read up that it might be quite an interesting film to watch, and then you said no, you'd seen it, and it was shit. It, it, well, it was okay. It was Jackie Chan doing Jackie Chan things, but Jackie Chan's now sixty-five years old. And he so can't do. He can't jump out of Pierce helicopters Brosnan, the way he used yeah, to. They cast Pierce Brosnan as a former IRA member, and he looks and sounds exactly like Jerry Adams. Yeah, it's sort of pretty, pretty <laughs> obvious what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I've never really been into Bruce Lee's stuff. Um, that kind of era of Chinese dubbing films where everything's out of sync. Um, and obviously you've got the subtitles to try and keep up with that, but I've just, I've never really watched one. There's my yeah, it's, it's interesting it. that you should call up the likes of Jet Li and, and Jackie Chan and, and so on, because I think what you'd find is if you spoke to any of those people whose, whose martial arts films you love, um, 
you would uh, you would find that they would all say that they're only here because of Bruce Lee, which doesn't mean you should like Bruce Lee or his no, films. No, no, he was obviously made it accessible. Huge, well, yeah, and that's the thing. I think if if you if you love the Beatles or you or if you love bands that are influenced by the Beatles, you could go back and find out that the reason the Beatles exist is because of um, Little Richard uh, and, and other kind of rock and roll stars of the fifties. That doesn't mean you're going to go out and listen to all their records. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They exist in a certain place or time, and they've been hugely influential like Buddy Holly, it can be hard to see their impact now so so long afterwards, if you see what I mean. So if we maybe go into a little bit of Bruce Lee's background, it it might be interesting as to to show why he's had the impact he's had. And and as you say, we don't really know what he would be like as a fighter in the real world, although there are some some things we'll go into about his success as a person as a fighter. But what he was especially good at and what he's really most known for is how good a movie fighter he was on screen. Which is important. If you've, it's got to look right on screen. It's got to look, you know, it's got to look cinematic when it happens. And he, he took the, the genre to, to a whole new level in, in his short career. Um, in terms of other sort of things that you'll probably be, you know, familiar with to do with Bruce Lee, he's got some very specific links to Quentin Tarantino, um, which I'm sure you'll have noticed. The yellow jumpsuit that um, uh, Uma Thurman wears in Kill Bill Volume One is influenced by Bruce Lee. Even Love more him. so, even more so, she rides a motorcycle and wears a, a motorcycle crash helmet at one point in, in Kill Bill. And that is um, that is influenced by the cash-in version of Game of Death that was made after Bruce Lee died. Um, and the reason they had uh, the yellow jumpsuit and a, a crash helmet is that they didn't have much usable footage of Bruce Lee in that suit. So they used stand-ins, some of them with the head bandage, some of them with a crash helmet on. And in one really ridiculous example, people with whole, literally with a cardboard cutout mask of Bruce Lee over his face. Like um, Deadpool with uh, Hugh Hackman, it's as bad as that. But you know, I think Tarantino was clearly referencing both of those things when he used that jumpsuit in um, uh, in, in Kill Bill. Also, David Carradine has some links to Bruce Lee, which we'll, we'll find out um, from Kill Bill Volume Two. Uh, and in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Bruce Lee is actually featured in one of Tarantino's films. Which everyone went fucking mental, and Tarantino told them to shut the fuck up in a very Tarantino way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I mean, I I like Bruce Lee, and I I didn't find what uh, Tarantino did disrespectful at all. No, I thought it, it was, was um, fine. It was fine. It was, yeah, exactly. It was fine. It was it was it was a funny it was a funny little vignette from the Tarantino world, which I didn't think was was uh, anything other than a, an interesting yeah. little sketch. I don't think it was disrespectful to Bruce Lee at all. So, in terms of Bruce Lee's background, personally, he was born in San Francisco in 1940, so he was an American citizen. He moved to Hong Kong as a small child. Um, he was a child actor in some Hong Kong films in the 50s, which are you know really nothing to do with his kind of modern career as a martial arts guy. As a teenager, he participated in a lot of rooftops martial arts fights in Hong Kong, which were essentially illegal street fights. Uh, they got him into trouble with the law and with the triads because he uh, he was reputed to have done a lot of damage to to a young guy who was connected to the triads. So to get him out of that that kind of trouble he was getting into, he, his family moved him back to the US in his late teens. Uh, where he completed his education. Now, he did actually make a name for himself in martial arts in America in the 60s. He caused controversy for one thing among traditional Kung Fu practitioners because he would teach anyone, including Americans, when they would only teach uh, Chinese people. Um, The story goes that he was challenged to a match to decide if he could continue teaching, which he decisively won. Accounts vary about what actually happened. But there is a record, as you say, before Bruce Lee got injured of him of him being a fighter and of having quite a lot of success as a fighter. But I, I think that's gone, kind of got lost in the midst of time a little bit. 
Um, he founded his own form of martial arts, which he called Jeet Kune Do, and he's written a, a book about his, his philosophy of Jeet Kune Do as well, which I've read and is really good. He's credited with paving the way for MMA with his martial arts style because what he did was he drew on many different martial arts styles and wanted to see those different styles fighting each other instead of karate v. karate or judo versus judo, um, which you know did change the game back then when he was doing it. Um, he did suffer that bad back injury, which kept him out of action, and after that, Really, the success of um, his martial arts style came from his students. And it's worth mentioning that Bruce Lee taught his martial arts style to a number of people uh, at a number of karate schools across uh, California and even you know, further afield in America in the late 60s, early 70s. And there was a point where all the major karate tournaments that were held in the US were won and had the defending champion were students of Bruce Lee. So his fighting style was made a huge impact at the time, and he personally made a huge impact with some of his karate demonstrations. This brought him to the attention of Hollywood, but his Hollywood career was pretty unsatisfying. He played Kato in The Green Hornet on TV, had a lot of stereotypical supporting roles and cameos. He had a recurring role in a short-lived detective show called Long Street, where he played a martial arts instructor, and he worked a lot of his real-life ideas into his lines. Uh, that's relevant to this story because The Game of Death wasn't just meant to be a martial arts film. It was meant to be a film where he could showcase some of his views on martial arts itself. Um, so the fact that in previously on screen, he played someone who was trying to teach other people those principles shows what he was trying to do with it when he eventually was making what you'd say his own films. Um, the, the, the straw that brought the camels back from was in 1971, he, he pitched a show which was tape, taken up eventually called Kung Fu, which was a, a, a Western, um, but with martial arts in it, um, about a, essentially someone who'd, who'd grown up as a Shaolin monk and, and was now, you know, practicing Kung Fu in, you know, episode by episode across the Wild West. Um, they wouldn't let him play the lead, and they cast a white guy who they thought looked a bit Asian instead, in, in David Carradine, which is the other link to Tarantino. At this point, he realizes he's never going to be anything other than the sidekick or some sort of exotic villain in American films at that point, unless he can go and make a name for himself elsewhere. So he goes back to Hong Kong, where they have a film industry, and there it, he, he makes a name for himself. Um, Everything that we know about Bruce Lee now hinges on three films that he made um, before he, he, you know, he, he really broke out: uh, The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, and The Way of the Dragon. Uh, he also wrote and directed Way of the Dragon. It was the first film he wrote and directed himself. Although in The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, he directed uh, or was believed to have directed all the actual fight scenes, because prior to him, a lot of kung fu films were, were seen as a bit silly and, and not really to be taken seriously, and he. It was able to make the martial arts so thrilling and exciting with the way that he did them um, that he, he completely changed the game. Now, these films were all big hits, especially in Asia, but they made a splash in the West as well. I mean, they were very, very commercially successful. Now, Bruce Lee at the time thought these films were really cheesy and they were still stuck in the style of traditional Hong Kong movies, but he did feel like they were headed in the right direction and were making waves internationally. And his act, as I said, his action scenes really took things up a level. Um, and he, he he had a plan in which he was going to take these films up to another level uh, that would really kind of make them work better cinematically, better as films, but also be more um, work better as stories. Because a lot of these original Hong Kong films, you, you can see it evolving in the first few films that he made because he did um, The Big Boss and it's, it's got some really cheesy, silly side plots, which was very typical of Hong Kong films at the time. Likewise, Fist of Fury. Um but then The Way of the Dragon took things up to a new level, and, and even Fist of Fury had started to have more of a storyline to it. 
And Bruce Lee's this incredibly driven character, and his screen presence was, you know, like I say, it's like Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca now. It's hard to imagine the impact he had at the time when he started appearing in films for the first time, because now it's almost a cliche looking like Bruce Lee and moving like Bruce Lee in, in films. Um, but he was really single-minded, and he really wanted to achieve that success. And as you say, that, that stuff with the painkillers, um, it, 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 it is relevant, because I think he was overworking himself. There, there's a story I read about him which summed, sums that feeling up. He, he's alleged to have had his sweat glands removed from his armpits because he didn't think sweaty pits looked good on camera. And that actually might have made him prone to heat stroke and damaged his health. So he really was so obsessed with this kind of level of success and making these films the biggest films in the world. Um, and it's possible that he was taking more painkillers than he should so that he could work through the pain. Yeah. Um, so that that's where Bruce Lee is. He started to become a really big star and he started to get noticed in America. And he thought, well, this is the moment for him to really take things over the top. And um, the, the, the chronology of The Game of Death works like this. In 1972, he was working on The Game of Death, which was going to be his kind of magnum opus martial arts film, which was going to totally change things. He interrupted it to do a film called Enter the Dragon because they came and said, look, Bruce, we can tell you're a big star. Martial arts is really hitting it big. We want you to do an international film, but it's very much built around you called Enter the Dragon. And it was kind of like a James Bond film for martial arts fans. This is where he is sent to take part in a um, in a, a martial arts uh competition on an island uh which is the island is owned and the competition is held by this evil character who is uh wanted a wanted man by a number of global intelligence agencies he's up to all sorts of terrible crimes um he's also the person responsible for killing someone very close to uh bruce lee so he says yeah i'm going to do this i'm going to go onto this island and fight this guy and what you got was because it's a, a fighting you know competition you see bruce lee have a number of fights and then you see how martial martial arts fights with all the henchmen and with the main villain himself. This film was an absolutely enormous film. Uh, it made it cost eight hundred and fifty k to make, which was not small, um, but still not the most expensive film by by the standards of nineteen seventy three. A big blockbuster that year would have cost between five and fifteen million dollars to make. It made one hundred and ten million dollars on its original release, which oh. is six hundred and sixty million dollars in in, in in today's money, with a couple of re-releases. Um, uh, that because it was so successful, it was really released a number of times in later years. Its total box office take in uh, in you know in today's money is over a billion dollars. It was fucking huge, um, and that really that really took him over the top. And having done that, he went back to start working on Game of Death again um, with. With some added power, he said, "Wow, I'm, he's, he was possibly the biggest new star in the world at the time. So he could really, he could really be ambitious with this new film he was making." Um, and then he died suddenly, shortly before Enter, Enter the Dragon was, was was even released. So he knew that, and everyone knew that Enter the Dragon was going to be a huge film. It was this huge kind of hugely anticipated event. He was about to really go go over the top, um, and then he died. Um, as you said, as you said, James, a post-mortem concluded it was a severe allergic reaction to the uh, the medication he was on. But there are all sorts of other theories that are conspiracy theories that aren't really worth going into now. There were stories that, you know, all the people who didn't like him teaching martial arts to the world outside China might have, you know, had him killed. It's all bullshit, I think. Um, um, to be honest, I wouldn't... This is very tinfoil hatty, but um, I watched a video about this guy called... His name's he's called the Mad Dog. I can't pronounce his Chinese name. It's something like Xiao Shu Dong or something like that. And he basically okay. goes around all these kung fu masters who claim they've got spiritual powers and they can break concrete blocks with their nostrils and things like that. And mm -hmm. how the power of kung fu basically makes them, you know, indestructible. 
And he's basically just kind of like an MMA kind of guy, that kind of fighter. And he'll go up, he'll start chatting shit with them online, talking smack. And the guy with the the guy who's powerful in kung fu goes, "Oh, I'll fucking batter you! I'll I'll hit you with one punch, and you'll die on the spot." And he goes, "Okay," and he battles them. And every single time he battles them, trying to expose how nonsense kung fu is. But kung fu is very sacred in China. It's very protected. If it's very ingrained in their culture, and he was basically he was he had his um, citizenship effectively revoked by the Chinese government because he kept slagging off um, you know all these kung fu masters and he was told to stop and he didn't um, mm. one of his pals went missing for slagging off kung fu culture um, and when I say went missing I mean dead um, but yeah he he had to he had a, he had basically had his citizenship revoked by the government for slagging off kung fu so if you make make your own martial art and start teaching it outside of china then you know maybe that's enough to put a target on your back i don't i wouldn't yeah, i don't know I the mean, guy it, was it, huge it, in china as well so and i doubt yeah, it yeah so yeah i mean the the mythology around bruce lee is big partly because he was so big so and and, and you know what no, none of those conspiracy you know the the postmortem isn't one hundred percent conclusive either, so it's not surprising that other stories have abounded about his um about his uh, about his death. Um, so to, to to go back to um to, to the game of death, to, to just just to close things down, because he died and they weren't able to um uh, make the film they wanted to make, there was a load of footage left over, and then five years after he died, a really shocking, disrespectful cash in called game of death um was was released which took what footage they had and 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 just made up a different kind of really shonky story with some actual footage of bruce lee that he made for the film some footage cannibalized from other bruce lee films including quite important fight scenes from the story of other films that this dropped in there for no reason uh, and various really shitty attempts to kind of t- piece the story together with stand-ins lookalikes and cardboard cutouts uh, and it's generally regarded as a really kind of sickening um, cash-in on the whole story. The only thing that's interesting about it is that in that version of Game of Death, the um, the plot line that they use is that the the brute the brute the, 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 the character played by Bruce Lee um, is making a martial arts film, and when they fire guns at him on set, they use the footage from from uh, I think Fist of Fury for this. Um, some of the bullets are real, uh, and it's a plot to kill him. Uh, and he's he's shot and, and horribly wounded on and, and put in a coma on uh, you know on the film set, and then he wakes up and has to take revenge. And that's quite chilling because that's kind of how his son died, on um, without the without the conspiracy, I think. But that, that very similar incident is how his son died for real uh, while making the crow. You know, twenty odd years later. So is it's kind we, of that was just a blank though, wasn't it? That was too close. That wasn't like yeah. a plot to kill his son. It was no, it wasn't a plot. But it, it, it's it's interesting that in a film. In, made in 1978, the the, yeah. the the idea of someone being shot on on set in an accident involving firearms ends up being how his his own son dies while making a film is does give you pause. But again, it's another reason. It's it's another piece that kind of fuels the conspiracy mill around Bruce Lee and his family. Yeah, but but going back to the original kind of Game of Death film, the, the central story starts out as being a fairly familiar martial arts films plot. Bruce Lee plays a retired martial arts champion who's living in quiet obscurity. He's given it all up. Korean organized crime figures approach him and say, we want you to lead a heist to steal priceless treasure from a guarded pagoda somewhere in Korea. A pagoda, for those who don't realize, is a, like a multi-level kind of uh, Eastern-style building. Some of them are um, temples, and some of them are just buildings that you, that you live in. So there's multiple levels, and you'd have to fight his way through, and the treasure's at the top of the pagoda. 
He refuses because he's quite happy with his quiet life. Um, so the organized crime figures kidnap his family and say, we'll kill your family unless you carry out this heist for us. So he has to assemble a team and carry out this heist so that he can you know, rescue his family. The pagoda is on a heavily guarded island with metal detectors at every entry point, so you can't take guns in there. So Bruce Lee has and his team have to go in uh, unarmed um, and find their way through the island, uh, and get into the pagoda, fight the people guarding the pagoda, and, um, uh, and and get the treasure. And obviously, at the end of that, Bruce Lee is presumably going to be more interested in getting his family back than in, than in the organized crime people getting the treasure that they want. In terms of the film itself, there are storyboards and sketches and that story outline uh, of, of Bruce Lee, although it doesn't look like the script is finished. You can find that storyline info online, including um, some uh, of the sketches and drawings that he did that show you the pagoda and different things, and some of the footage that he filmed, because he filmed about 33 minutes of usable footage or 33 minutes of footage um, before he went off to do, to do it, Enter the Dragon, and then came back. It doesn't tell you what the treasure is that he's after. It doesn't say how he gets his family back afterwards, or if he goes after the underworld figures who forced him to do this. So there's a lot we don't know about the complete vision Bruce Lee had. And also, all of the script stuff that he had was kind of done before Enter the Dragon came out and was such a big hit. And I would suggest that after being the, becoming the most successful kind of individual film star in the world, he would have probably gone back to the drawing board on the game of death and maybe been a little bit more ambitious because he would have had more money to make the film. He'd have had more money. He'd have had more international attention for the film he was going to make. Um, he was already going to do the film in English. He was already confident that he was going to be able to make this for an international market. But I think we were going to see more of this film once he did it. Um, he wanted to get away from traditional martial arts film cliches and tell the stories his way. Um, the yellow jumpsuit was to, to sort of say that he had no ties to any traditional martial arts um, equipment or clothing. It was purely the functional to, to perform and it became iconic, even though it didn't come out while he was alive. Um, and he would fight a different martial arts practitioner on each level of the pagoda, which would show how his style competed against other martial arts style. Um, and at the top, quite interesting, there is a, the, the, the big boss. It's almost like a video game. There's a big boss waiting for him on the, on the final level. Uh, and that's played by a guy called Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Now, he was a basketball star who was friends with Bruce Lee in real life and had, had been taught martial arts by Bruce Lee. Um, and the idea in this is that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is someone who can only fight in kind of darkness and he's light-sensitive and Bruce Lee has to fight him. And the weird thing about this, especially if you look at the footage, Bruce Lee was five foot seven, and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's still alive today, is seven foot two. Yeah, he's the guy from Airplane. That's I right. He's one of the best basketball players ever. But that's right. Yeah. Um. His. Uh, you know. He. He was immortalized in airplane. Yeah. Um. And if you see photographs of this and you see the the scenes where they fight, it's so weird. It looks like they've used kind of Hobbit special effects to make them look so different in size. It looks like there's some sort of forced perspective at work because this guy is so much bigger than Bruce Lee. <laughs> um. But as we say. It, I believe he was going to go back to the drawing board of the Enter of Dragon, not completely back to the drawing board, but I think he was going to introduce more elements to the story. I think the story would go through a rewrite and 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 he would come up with whatever ideas he was going to come up with kind of to, to the end of the film. Um, he actually met former James Bond actor George Lazenby, who lived in Hong Kong at the time, to give him a part in the film. Um, he was still quite a recognisable face because he'd made a Bond film and that he was going to be some sort of international spy helping the um, uh, the, the team, although there was no footage filmed of that. Um, uh, the, the producer that, that uh, Bruce Lee was working with, a guy called Raymond Chow, who had a lot of ridiculous ideas that he always tried to work into the story and Bruce Lee had to kind of veto them, says, no, he's not going to actually be James Bond and all this stuff. One thing I liked was Raymond Chow's idea was to um, 
uh, get George Lazenby, who was originally from Australia, to play an Australian assassin who uses a boomerang, which would have been different anyway. <laughs> I, I don't think the guy from Suicide Squad, Captain Boomerang, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, think Bruce Lee was, I don't think Bruce Lee was going to do that. It, it, you know, I don't think he wanted to do that. That was what's suggested to him by Raymond Chow because Bruce Lee was taking this film really seriously, perhaps too seriously because I, I've seen the footage that gets filmed and there are lines of dialogue where he explains why his fighting style is better than the other guy's fighting style. My one reservation about this film is I think Bruce Lee might have been trying to tell people, you know, tell the world about his, his martial arts a little bit too much to get on with the film, although it's hard to judge when it when not all the footage has been shot, right? Okay. Um now, in the end, there was only 30 minutes of usable footage because a lot of that footage is like retakes of the same scene and everything. And if you actually like cut down to kind of usable takes, there's 12 minutes, which is essentially the, some of the pagoda fights, including the climax. Um, but uh, it, it is interesting that, you know, if Bruce Lee had lived, his next film was going to be an even more ambi- ambitious film on the back of one of the biggest box office hits in the world at the time. So he could have he could have gone out and been really, really ambitious. Um, so in a way, we'll, we'll never know what, what he could have been like. But the, the the influence of Bruce Lee was just so huge at the time. I mean, Jackie Chan was originally a, a stunt double and then a, a, an opponent for Bruce Lee in his films. And when Bruce Lee died, they were looking for the next, you know, Bruce Lee. And Jackie Chan said, well, I can't be Bruce Lee because he, he was unique in the way he fought. But... Jackie Chan's great skill was in to be something of a – he was almost like a clown, wasn't he? He's so, he was a gifted kind of comic was, actor as well. Yeah, yeah, it was totally different. It wasn't like martial arts in the sense that 1v1, it was taking on everyone at once in someone's house. Yeah, of. and, and his, his, he could like he could walk on a tightrope and seem to fall off it uh, while fighting six guys, and, and he realized that he didn't have quite the same kind of look as Bruce Lee, so he would have to bring something different. But – Everyone who made films back then, who was in the martial arts genre, they had to up their game because of Bruce Lee. And and the world became fascinated with martial arts films. There were black exploitation was quite big in America at the time, and all of a sudden, black a lot of black exploitation films um, sort of merged with martial arts. And you had black exploitation and martial arts mixed into films. Um, one of the Bond films was almost a martial arts film, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, because of how successful Enter the Dragon had been. The whole world kind of changed because of Bruce Lee, but he didn't live to kind of take part in it, if you see what I mean, which is probably the, the real tragedy because whatever anyone else thinks of Bruce Lee, I mean, I really like his books and I really like his kind of philosophy, um, but I do understand that there was an element of self-promotion to Bruce Lee where he, you know, he talked about himself and, and his philosophy a lot, which not everyone loves, um, but he was, an, he was such a, a magnetic presence on screen and mm-hmm. we missed out because he only made four, four proper Bruce Lee films. And he was about to make one which was, you know, going to be very new and very different. Um, so even though I think martial arts films progressed because of him, we didn't get to see how they would progress with him in them, if you see what I mean. So definitely one that got away. Absolutely. And it can it can never be repeated. You know, you can't, you know, even if even if someone was to try and take Bruce Lee's original vision and, and make this film now, the, the moment's gone um, and it wouldn't be Bruce Lee in it. So it is a, a genuine lost opportunity. We close the first route of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. 
There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they are justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month, we're looking at one of the pioneers of the modern era's desecration of old classics, with remakes that were obviously a mistake from the start. This is where it all started. The remake hate watch for episode 15 is 1997's The Jackal. So just to preface this, this James, we, we set up the films that we're going to watch and discuss for the, uh, for the film. And uh, this one, you, you probably made the greatest assessment of this film by being unable to, to, to finish watching it because it was so shit. Yeah, so for the listeners, my dad sends me a, a list of all the films that we haven't seen yet and that have been suggested by you guys. And he says, let's pick three. Sometimes he picks two, I pick one. Sometimes he picks all three, I pick all three, just depending on how certain podcasts have gone. Yeah. And he suggested The Jackal for the remake. Hey, and I was like, right, cool. Where do I watch it? BBC iPlayer. Cool. Don't have to spend any money on this shit. I think this month I didn't have to buy any of the films. That's a, always a bonus when, the it, when Jackal, watching and shit. The Illusionist was on Amazon Prime, which I've already got. And what was the other one? Constant Gardener. Oh, shit. I did have to buy The Constant Gardener for £2.50. But, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, put The Jackal on for free, and I went, wait, what's this about? So, I read, Bruce Willis is this operative who's going rogue or something, and then Richard Gere is a former IRA member. And I went, Richard Gere's doing what now? <laughs> no, he's not. Because Americans can't do Irish accents. If you've, if you've ever seen, uh, especially especially Northern Irish accents, which is a well, nuance they just don't get. Well, Brad Pitt tried to do it in the Devil's Own, and basically he couldn't even nail down "I" because he just goes "oi," yeah, "oi" for the entire film. So I didn't have high hopes for this, and I don't know when you meet Richard Gere's character. I think it's in, within the first ten minutes, and I went uh, just as just as Richard Gere went to say his first words, I messaged my dad as I was watching it, and I said, "Does Richard Gere have a terrible Irish accent in this?" And he went, "Yeah." And I said, "Am I going to turn the film off as soon as I hear it?" And he went, "Hmm." And then I sent a video of him saying his first words in the film, and I just turned my Xbox off immediately and went, "Nope." And and it doesn't get any better than the point you were at in in the film. The only thing that changes from then is that he shaves that silly goatee off. Yeah, just couldn't. It wasn't Northern Irish. It was soft Southern Irish. He hadn't even made an attempt to try and sound Northern Irish. I thought, fuck this. This film's rubbish. I mean, the other thing that would probably be a bit of a struggle for you is that you probably haven't seen the original film either. No. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, so, I mean, but, but that's where we are. I mean, to be honest, I think it was, it was, it was genuine to get your reaction to the film when it came out. There was certainly no baggage for you. You weren't sitting there holding a candle for the original film that would make you hate the new one. You watched yeah. the first one, you turned it on and, and hated it as much as you did within a few minutes, which I think tells you a lot about where we are with this film. But for the purpose of the structure, this is a remake of a 1973 film called The Day of the Jackal, which in turn was the adaptation of a highly successful novel of the same name by Frederick Forsyth. Um, it's, it's baffling as to why people wanted to remake this film because it, it refers to a specific event or a specific set of events in history that date back to the 1960s in France, which aren't exactly current to modern audiences. Um, but this is like the mid to late 90s when this fad for remakes really started. They did Lost in Space with uh, um, Matt LeBlanc. They started to do more and more of these uh, remakes where it was evident they didn't have any new ideas of their own and were just kind of rehashing old ones. They did that version of The Avengers with Uma Thurman. That's not the Marvel Avengers. That's the old TV show, The Avengers, which why they thought that would appeal to a modern audience, who knows? They did The Italian Job, which we've covered on this, um, and they did The Planet of the Apes, which we covered on this. So this is the start of this era when 
these redundant and pointless remakes that haven't had as much, nearly as much thought put into them as the original films started to be made. Um, so to give you that background, this is about a plot by far-right French dissidents in the ni- early 1960s um, who wanted to assassinate Charles de Gaulle um, because they were disgruntled with him giving up the colony of Algeria where so many French soldiers had died trying to hold on to the last sort of part of their empire. And it's inspired by real events where, spoiler alert, this is actually the opening scene of the original film, the assassination plot um, or an assassination plot failed. Uh, de Gaulle carried on, but the um, you know all, all, the, all the assassins were, were killed or, or, and one was executed. He was hanged for, for treason. So they were pretty serious about trying to kill Charles de Gaulle. And this novel picks up from that real event uh, and, and events a fictionalized uh, plot where this far-right group hire a a professional assassin gun for hire who has no ideological link to their plot, but is an absolute master of disguise and of weapons and is going to sneak in where no one can find him and, and assassinate the French president. Um, and the, the police get wind of the plot and have to find out who the, the, the assassin is, catch up to him and, and stop him before he assassinates the president. The fascinating thing was everyone back then knew that Charles de Gaulle wasn't really assassinated by anybody. So they went in watching the film, knowing that you know, knowing that unless something really weird happens in this film, it's not going to be <laughs> successful. But they were still fascinated by this beautifully balanced cat and mouse uh, uh, investigation, where these dogged detectives, you know, build up the evidence and are one step behind him, and they're, they're just they just miss him, and he moves to the next town, and he changes into another disguise and and tries something else, and he's always one step ahead of them, and he's got this very clever. Um, sniper rifle, which he, he can disguise as a crutch and dress up as a war veteran to get closer to de Gaulle. And they they don't know his name. They only know he's been traveling on a false passport and they build up the evidence and they he he, he uses people to, to have somewhere to stay because the police are chasing him and then murders them to cover his tracks. And they're just one step behind him. And it comes up to the final climax of the film and you really think, Oh my God! Is he going to get away with this? Um, it's it's and it's it's gripping and it's not full of like action scenes and car chases, but it's a really gripping, meticulous um, uh, character study of the assassin and of the the, the detective trying to catch him and uh, across Europe. Um, it was a very successful film. Uh, here's a bit of fun fact trivia for you: the real life assassin Carlos the Jackal, who was pretty much the most wanted man in the world in the 1970s, was only given that nickname. Because when they raided one of the houses he'd been staying in, they found the original novel, The Day of the Jackal, amongst his belongings. <laughs> so a real-life assassin for hire was reading this book by Frederick Forsyth um, because it was uh, it was such a fascinating book. So it, this, this film was an absolute cornerstone of the modern consciousness in the, the 1970s and was about big events in Europe in the 1960s. What interest that has for the, the modern film audience in the late 1990s, no one can tell. But they decided to do this remake, and 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 frankly, because they couldn't use any of the original material, they just came up with a completely new plotline, which is really stupid and lazy. Now the real enemies are the Russian mafia, and the reason the Russian mafia want to assassinate someone in America is because the FBI have gone over to Russia, joined up with some Russian police force, and killed a gangster. What are the FBI doing in Russia? Nobody knows. So the the Russian gangsters say, "Well, we're going to assassinate somebody by by, by return." and hire an assassin. You just think, well, okay, that's a really dumb and lazy like version of this story. But okay, now now you've got your jackal. Now you've got your you know assassin on the way. What are you going to do with it? But it's not a, a couple of police detectives um, carefully following him around Europe. 
it's an IRA prisoner who's met the jackal in a previous life um, who's going to catch him. And that the FBI apparently let IRA prisoners run their investigations for them. Rocks up in a leather jacket and tells the FBI what to do, because apparently that's a thing. In a um, really bad accent. Yeah, and that's the thing. These guys are really miscast. Richard Gere was originally going to play the jackal, and he decided he'd rather do the other part. Um, uh, and instead, they got Bruce Willis to play the jackal. And you know what? Bruce Willis is a good actor. I like Bruce Willis, but he's not hes not this guy, right? Um, and all through this film, you see Bruce Willis wearing a different wig or a different disguise or a different fucking pair of glasses or moustache. Honestly, it's like Bruce Willis raided his dress-up box to wear different disguises to do this film, and he's poncing around, hiding. Um and the so they've they've jettisoned the original idea of like a a, a a gripping like suspenseful cat and mouse chase across Europe to catch the assassin, and they're trying to do it as an action film. But you've still got the same problem that the big thing is the battle at the end, right? Or is the attack at the end where he tries to assassinate someone? So what do you do in the hour and a half leading up to that? They try and make it into an action film. It doesn't fucking work. Um, Part of the problem is that they didn't have quality people doing it. The, the director, Michael Caton-Jones, is a bit of a journeyman. The original director of the, the first film, The Day of the Jackal, was Fred Zinnemann. He'd already won four Oscars before he directed Day of the Jackal, so you're already talking about better quality of people making it. Interesting enough, they did try and get Liam Neeson to play uh, a role in the film, which presumably would have been Richard Gere's IRA guy. Yeah. Um, which would have been better than Richard Gere. And again, I like Richard Gere. What they've done here is they've made me dislike actors that I normally really love in films. They've got Sidney Poitier, they've got uh, Bruce Willis, they've got Richard Gere, uh, Diane Venora, who people would recognise if they saw her. She's never bad in a film. So they've managed to waste a terrible, ca- uh, a really good cast on a terrible film. Um, and they haven't put any any effort into it because all they do is they say, well, now that we've got a slightly different setup for why he's doing it, let's just lay out the plot for the film. And there's no real invention of their own. The big change is that instead of a a sniper rifle, the Jackal is going to carry out his assassination with a massive 50 caliber um, machine gun that uh, fires bullets that are like 10 inches long, Um, which is a really odd thing to carry out an assassination with. And also means he's got to carry it around in a van which makes him a lot more kind of noticeable. And he's got to find places to hide his van. And you just think, really, is that it? Um, and it, so w- without solving the, the plot problem that now they're no longer doing the original story, they have to follow all the same things. And you mentioned how does Jack Black get into this? Well, in the original film, there's an armorer, uh, of, uh, uh, you know, someone who makes illegal guns for people, no questions asked. And the, and the Jackal goes to him and specifies this very clever sniper rifle which you can hide and and carry around with you so that he he goes to the person to make him this giant minigun and it's jack black and it's jack black doing jack black because because they wanted to be up to the minute so let's get jack black to play a slacker character and he actually stands there kind of almost doing air guitar while um while uh bruce willis like tests his gun out and and the only realistic part of this whole film was that bruce willis gets so annoyed by that that he shoots jack black (laughs) or just kills him yeah, <laughs> that's quite good. That <laughs> it's just like, but it's they don't get the tone right because that's almost being played for laughs. And then, but at the rest of the time, you've got to believe that Bruce Willis is this assassin who's 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 stealthily going around, uh, you know, America and Canada, kind of hiding from the authorities. Um, uh, and like I say, there, there comes a point where Richard Gere is actually running the investigation himself. Um, even though when you actually get into the storyline, I won't go into too much. He's not necessary for the storyline. 
They got this stuff about, oh, well, he's met him, so he'll know what he's like and be able to follow him. He doesn't offer any insights which tell him about the, the, the stuff. Actually, his ex-girlfriend, who's a Basque militant that, that, that they know is hiding, the idea was, oh, we'll go and speak to him because we can try and find her. But then they find her address themselves, so they don't need Richard Gere to find the other woman. They find that woman, and she tells them quite a lot about the jackal and his methods and, and, and where he might have worked in the past, which gives some clues to his identity. So what's Richard Gere even doing in the story at all? Apparently, standing around in a leather jacket, telling the FBI what to do. This is it. Just because none of it, because none of it is any effort put into it. It's one of these. It's one of these sort of silly stories where the maverick American kind of saves the day again, even though the maverick American is actually Northern Irish in this. It doesn't make any. Is he's, any not, sense. He's, not, he's not Northern Irish. He's got a Lucky Charms accent. Yeah, it? and it doesn't make any sense. And then at the end, spoiler alert, the, the Basque separatist woman, even though she's given up being a terrorist and now has a husband and two kids, she pops up in the subway, say, subway station to shoot the jackal and save the day, rather than that highly trained and well-armed unit that is running across Washington, D.C., trying to avert the assassination. <laughs> it's just... You know, and I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention J.K. Simmons is in this film as well. So there's this amazing oh, cast of people that are totally wasted with a, and with a series of stupid tropes like, oh, this person gets shot, you know, this, you know, uh, you know, th- this uh, this twist comes about because there's some personal enmity between the two main characters, and they just chuck it in and go, oh man, they, they must have been in a rush because it just doesn't stack up at all, and. Because there wasn't as much remake fatigue as there is now, and because Bruce Willis was still a massive star in the seventies, this film was a hit, even though it was absolute bullshit. Um, so it, the success of this, I think, gave people the green light to do a bit more of this kind of shitty remake stuff. So while this film is crap, it's kind of responsible for a lot of the other shitty remakes we've been subjected to. And yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, not- I'm I'm fully no comment on this because I watched about eight minutes of this and thought i don't need to know this i find it very thing. difficult to criticize anyone who watches eight minutes of this film and then switches off because all they have done is spared themselves two hours of fucking boredom and annoyance yeah, I, I had shit to do i wasn't and you know and there's there's a bit at the end where you could see that there was a good scene in there somewhere especially because sydney poitier is acting it where at the end of it they haven't offered richard gear's character a full pardon um but he'll be moved to minimum security and Sidney Poitier says, well, I just caught the guy who tried to assassinate this important figure. Um, I'm pretty much bomb-proof here, and I'm just about ready for my pension anyway, so I don't really don't, don't give a shit. They can't do anything to me. Um, so if I were to kind of go and get a cup of coffee and wait, and you wait here, and when I came back, you weren't here, it, um, I'm sure I wouldn't get into that much trouble. And he walks off to get a coffee, and, uh, and, Bruce, and, and Richard Gere walks away. Now, I could see how that would be a good scene. Do you know what I mean? The idea that he can't say, I'm going to let you go, but he's kind of saying he's letting him go. Do you know what I mean? Because even though he doesn't, even though this guy has got this terrorist pass, past, he's kind of put himself in harm's way to, to to save the day. But because they've executed the rest of the story quite poorly, you haven't really built up that much sympathy for the IRA man. He's still a fucking IRA man. Um, and the ending is really not really very well done. So you can see what, you see what they could have done, um, but it's just not very well handled. It's just not, no one's quite put the effort into the writing or the scene. I'm not against this kind of film either. I mean, they've actually been quite good, you know, and thrilling sort of action-oriented films about assassins and snipers, like in the Line of Fire and Shooter, which with Mark Wahlberg, which I thought was quite good. But this is—it's a classic example of them trying to make an updated film where the original storyline holds them back, and the new stuff they've added in isn't very good either. Um, and um, unsurprisingly, it turns out to be shit. Yeah.
We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we will be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're marking the upcoming release of a new Bond film with a discussion of what the future may hold for 007 and the world's oldest living film franchise. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2 of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second Reel soon. Before that, stay tuned after the credits for our bonus discussion on Tenet. See you on the other side. Fuck their wives, drink their blood. Come on, Jeffrey, get them! Warning. Spoilers. From this point on, there will be a full discussion of the film Tenet, including spoilers about all sorts of things that happen in the story and how it ends, who lives and who dies. So if you haven't seen Tenet and you want to do that before you listen to this discussion, this discussion is very much intended for people who've already seen the film, and I wouldn't want to damage your enjoyment of any film by giving you spoilers before you're ready to hear them. Um, That's your warning. Um, from now on, we're discussing Tenet. Now, the context of this discussion is that Tenet came out last year in the middle of a whole range of other things. I went to see it at the cinema and I gave it my review uh, uh, for the podcast uh, on the episode that came out that month. Um, it was probably the biggest single uh, cinema release in, in a COVID hit year that had so many big, big films postponed. It was the latest Christopher Nolan, which is always a big talking point. And like some of um, Christopher Nolan's most recent films, the audience tends up to be the audience tends to be divided into into camps of people who who love the film and people who didn't. Um, there are people who absolutely loved Interstellar, like me. I think you as well, James. Um, yeah. And then there are people who are going, "Oh, this is you know, this is uh, this is silly. Nolan's gone off the boil here. This this is a, a very poor example. We should get back to what he's good at." Uh, and then Dunkirk came out and not the same. It was actually different. I think people fall on different sides by different films. But Dunkirk was was another one. where uh, There were some people going, oh, yeah, return to form from Nolan. This is brilliant. Dunkirk is great. And other people like me and you, James, who, who didn't like it very much. So he certainly, he seems to be in a, in a phase of his career where his, um, his films divide with audiences a bit more than they used to. And he seems to be... Um, reaching for something different from what he was 10 or 15 years ago, which means that not everyone who makes the film is going to love it. And that's what happened with Tenet, is that this time, whereas previously I think we tend to have the same opinion about all, all Nolan films, this time we've kind of come down on opposite sides in this. I love Tenet, but you really didn't like it at all, did you? Uh, no, it was shit. Discussion over. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> it was just fucking... It was, I cannot believe a film that fucking boring and that fucking bland was 250 odd million because it was shit it was it was it was incoherent and i i don't mind a film being challenging to kind of keep track of you know he's done that with um inception and interstellar spring to mind immediately some people might say that the prestige is a little harder to follow memento is definitely quite hard to follow but those films are universal not universally loved but the majority of people enjoyed those films like wow that's a you know that's a good film with a kind of challenging kind of concept and you know mind-bending kind of physics i mean i didn't find inception or interstellar too difficult to follow memento is definitely a bit of a 
okay, holy shit, I need to I need to lie down or I need to properly think about this film. But Tenet was just kind of it was just kind of rubbish. It was that it was so poorly written. It was so fucking poorly written. The bit the bit that sticks out to me where I thought, yeah, no, fuck this was the um it was the bit with the so yeah, we need to save the world because this guy's uh, he's dying from terminal cancer and he's basically taking the world with him through time inversion. And I was like, cool, cool motive. Kenneth Branagh, cool, cool kind of, you know, low-key kind of scary Russian villain. Cool, on board. I was like, we need to save the world. And what's her name? Elizabeth DeVicke goes, and my son. It's like, shut, shut up. What the fuck? Uh, yeah, that's the most important thing that we need to we need to take from this. It's not the inter- end of the fucking world, but your son. Shut you fucking sausage. What a terrible, terrible line. And at, at that point in the film, I was like, yeah, no, that wh- whatever happens now is redundant. There were some cool shots. There were some really cool shots, like the ab sailing and the reverse fights or the inverted fights and the, the card. Uh, the car bit in um, Estonia, which they've obviously filmed there to save a bit of money because no one goes to Estonia, even Estonians. Um, but it was just fucking, it was just messy and it was just kind of like, you know, let's just take a re like Interstellar's idea was that the earth is dying. We need to travel through wormholes and, um, you know, things like time dilation, things like that. They were concepts that seem mental and act, but are actually, you know, true and it was kind of like it wasn't too bizarre or far-fetched was time aversion just it just wasn't it doesn't it didn't grip me it was like oh okay cool you know bullets can travel back into the gun and they do more damage because you're going this way and your lungs can only breathe oxygen that's going forwards instead of backwards and it was just like oh do me a fucking favor it was it just it just felt i just i don't know i felt like his heart wasn't properly in this one and as much as he got plaudits for Dunkirk, I felt like his heart wasn't properly in that one either, but there was more of a soul to that film because it was such a iconic moment in British and world history that there was a bit more soul to it. It just felt like this film didn't have a soul. And I felt really bad for folk like Robert Pattinson and, uh, what's his name? John David Washington. Um, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're, they're, they're giving it as their own. They're playing, they're playing cool characters and they're playing interesting characters, but, Oh, yeah just couldn't i couldn't be fucked with it it was it wasn't it wasn't a concept that was particularly interesting to me um i think he's done enough of time as a concept especially with um memento interstellar and i suppose uh you can say in, uh, inception falls into the category of time because of the difference in timings because of the the dream sequences and the stages of dreams but this was just it was just it was just shit it wasn't it wasn't anything that I would write home about, and it was a real shame because it, after Dunkirk, I thought, okay, he's doing a sci-fi film, and it's going to be about you know how time can you know be inverted, and it's about that kind of stuff, and there's going to be a potential for some really cool shots, which there are. There's some really cool shots in it, especially you know with the the waves going against the boats and the building blowing up and then re blowing up and going back together or whatever. That that shot in the kind of final moment of the film, but it was just kind of messy and. The problem I have with Christopher Nolan film and diehard Christopher Nolan fans is that if you find it too convoluted and too messy, you're basically written off as a fucking imbecile, and you should you shouldn't think about things too much. And that's my one one of my couple of gripes I have with Interstellar is that the the ending to Interstellar is a little bit messy, and it's kind of like okay, so them from the future have planted this uh this space in the black hole, and you're gonna basically use Morse code through gravity across time to communicate to your 
daughter and you're like wait okay hang on that's a bit fucking mental do we even know this is potential thing you know you're just it seems like the entire the entire film of interstellar is look you've traveled through a wormhole potentially possible and now you're in another part of the universe and you've gone to different planets that can maybe sustain life cool and then and then after that it's oh yeah then there's this mental bit at the end and if you don't understand you're a fucking imbecile and just deal with it you maybe shouldn't have to think about it too much because you love 2001 a space odyssey so much and nobody understood that fucking film either so then you're basically just basically told, I'll oh, put up with it if you don't understand it. And I didn't really understand a fucking thing that was going on with the time inversion. It wasn't explained very clearly. It was just like, oh, look, this bullet goes backwards. Or look, this car's going backwards. And I'm sure there's been a lot of you know, thinking done with the the shooting and the recording of those shots and the, you know, how they formulate the CGI or the the practical stunts for it. But it was they just it didn't seem like it was something that I, that was that was interesting. Like it was, you know, if you've not made it as clear as you possibly can as a director, even though it's a complicated idea and you're just be telling folks to either think about it or you're being lazy yourself because you're not explaining it clearly enough, then you can go and fuck yourself because you've got to try and make sure that the audience, not, not everyone that watches Christopher Nolan films is Kip Thorne, you know, mental astrophysicist, you know, people that watch these films are just kind of general movie goers. And if you're basically told, oh, well, if you don't understand, you don't understand, then that's your fucking problem. That's not mine then it, you're you're kind of it's like you're being lost in your own arrogance of how grand and how large the idea of your film is that's the way i felt about tenet it was it wasn't thought it wasn't explained very clearly to me the the whole time inversion i know that it's basically time can go backwards and at the same time simultaneously you walk into this big fucking tumble dryer and you come out the other side and you need an oxygen mask depending on what side of the the uh, the flow of time you're on but other than that it was it was like, yeah, just kind of put up with the the bizarre idea of you need to go backwards in time to catch up with somebody. It was like, what? Eh? It, it, it's interesting, and I think where what, what what's happened is is that with these with the last couple of of Nolan films, people have found that you know people who are fans of Christopher Nolan have found themselves or have at times found themselves on the same side of the discussion as people who aren't fans of Christopher Nolan at all. I would say up until The Dark Knight Rises, um, people liked Christopher Nolan or they didn't. It was as simple as that, you know? But there were people who went, oh, I don't really like, the, you know, they would say they don't like Nolan, they don't like The Dark Knight. It's, you know, why are you making why are you making this all so sombre and ponderous? It's Batman, don't be ridiculous, or Inception, you know, the, what, what's all that about? And those people, you know, just, just you say, James, they're not idiots. They're just not turned on by what Christopher Nolan is doing. Right, yeah. and you know, forget those those film fans are morons. If we, we we talked about toxic fandom. There's nothing in the world that, that uh, a, a, a fucking fan on the internet can't can't piss everyone off about. Like, oh no, you're not stupid. To, you're too stupid to understand it. Fuck them. They're idiots. Um, the interesting thing about Christopher Nolan is, for a long time, it, you know, if you liked Christopher Nolan, you know, you liked Batman Begins, and you loved, you know, the, you know, the Prestige and Dark Knight and Inception. It was because what Christopher Nolan does and the way he does it appealed to you and you felt, oh, this is amazing filmmaking and other people were just never going to like it because they didn't, they, they, they didn't buy in to that. And it's a matter of taste. You either buy into it or you don't. But what's really interesting is that Christopher Nolan is really pushing the boundaries now. And there were people who really didn't like Interstellar because they thought the, the whole final act where, you know, you're, if you can exist in five dimensional space, the way you travel through that is by being able to focus on something that's really important to a time that's really important to you. And it, it did it in a way that isn't 
altogether straightforward. Some of it you have to make your mind up about what's really going on. And he's he is somehow able to send Morse code back to his daughter back at the time. And that shows you how um, uh, the, the, the future can be saved by future humans who are able to exist in another dimension of space. And you, you can't travel through time, but you can send messages through time. And some people went, that's fucking ridiculous. He's fucking in the bookcase. What a ridiculous idea. I hate it. And other people like us went, I love that. I, I, I'm, I'm on board with 100% of what happens in Interstellar. I think it's amazing. And But I had to say, I had to understand why some people would look at that, think it's absurd and not go along with it. In the same way that people came out of Dunkirk and went, that's amazing. I felt like I was there. I feel so much, I felt all the fucking power of what happened to Dunkirk through watching that film. And I went, well, well I didn't. I felt that the way he did it made it feel like there was only three aeroplanes, six boats, and 12 people in the whole thing. And I didn't get a sense of the scale of Dunkirk, and, and I felt that the, the performances were too muted, except someone else has gone and watched exactly the same film and felt exactly what Christopher Nolan wanted them to feel from watching the film. And I think what's happened is he is now pushing the boundaries with what he does, which means that he's going to bring out a film, and some people just aren't going to like it, not because they don't get it, not because they're not intelligent enough to get it, but because he's trying to do a certain thing which some people are just going to be turned off by. And he is he seems to be going into a phase of his career that Stanley Kubrick did. I mean, 2001 A Space Odyssey, an interesting parallel, not because you know it makes you intelligent if you get the film, but because Kubrick started making films where some people are going to watch the last half hour of that film and go, that's bullshit, this, none of this makes any sense, and other people are going to... Um, are going to go with it and, and, and are going to love what he did with the film. And I, and I think Tenet is, is as yet the biggest expression expression of that. And for, for, for the sake of Christopher Nolan's own career, I think if he carries on dividing the audiences the way he does, he might struggle. But personally, I think what he was trying to do with Tenet was basically the most ambitious film he's ever made. And I, for one, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was an incredible feat of filmmaking. I loved every minute of it. Um, and I don't, I've heard all the criticisms of it and I have to acknowledge them. I can understand why people would watch that and go, fucking hell, this is ridiculous. Because one of the key things is that he's trying to make the film immersive. The reason that the main character doesn't have a name uh, or, or you don't hear his name and the reason that you are disoriented in the way that you are is because he's trying to put the audience right in the middle of the action. And from minute to minute, it might not be clear to you what's going on. And you have to kind of strain to go, shit, this is all going to go off in one second. Where are we? Fuck. And if you're not prepared to go with that, if you, and I think, I personally, I think it's reasonable for an audience to expect the director to tell the audience a bit more about what's going on. I totally get it. I totally get it. And people who dislike that film for that reason, I totally understand. But what I loved about it was I felt like I'd been dropped into the middle of this and I was going to have to, and I felt all the kind of tension of, not only needing to stay alive from moment to moment while all of this shit is going on, but the world has got to be saved and it can only be saved if you can get your head around what the fuck is going on. And I honestly, the first time I watched that film, the hairs were standing on the back of my neck pretty much the whole way through. I thought it was an absolutely stunning piece of work. What, what's interesting about it is, is that he's one thing that's going to remain controversial about Nolan for, you know, in recent years is that ever since interstellar, he has started to make the sound mixing of his films more and more challenging. And, and he came out and said in an interview that in his previous films, what he was doing was he was doing less with the sound of his films because he knew how many cinemas had shit sound. 
And he said he doesn't want to make his films for cinemas with shit sound. They, the cinemas, should have better sound and to so that his films, you know, so that his films play on them. And I think that's a it's a very Christopher Nolan thing to say. It's the same thing as him always wanting to do things on film. But if you do watch the film with with a decent sound mix, you can follow everything that people are saying. The, the other thing that's challenging about the film is that, I mean, I've watched it three times now. I watched it twice in the cinema, once where a cinema didn't have a very good sound mix and once where it did have a good sound mix, and the difference was quite notable. And I've watched it at, at home on, on, on Blu-ray. And I, I got it. I got what was going on the first time, but I was clinging on by my fingernails. And that was part, that was part of the ride for me to be like, fucking hell. And, but with each, with each um, rewatching of the film, it repays further viewing. And again, it's, it's entirely reasonable for an audience to say, I paid for a ticket. I watched the film once. If, if I don't get it the first time, then the director has, has failed. And it's a it's a valid it's a valid criticism, and I have to say, a first time director who I'd not heard of, I would not have given them that much rope. I gave Nolan that much rope because he'd done Inception, because he's done Interstellar, because he'd done Memento, because he does things that kind of you know warp your mind. And I, I trusted that there would be some payoff on this if you went with it. But I, I appreciate an audience, a film goer, like you say, some people just want to watch a movie, and so I totally understand why some people watch that and go. Fucking hell, mate! I don't have, I don't want to have to watch the film three times to get what's going on. Now, I didn't need three times to to, to kind of get what was going on, um, and I, I think the first time you watched the film, the sound was shit, and that, and I can totally understand why that would um, make it really difficult to follow this film. And I think Nolan's going to have to think about that in future. I mean, I, I got what was going on, but then with each rewatching, that I can see that, that that's more in it, and I I thought it was absolutely tremendous. I, I understand your your criticism about. Um, uh, Elizabeth Debicki and, and her, her, you know, talking about her son. I, I felt I went with it because I felt that what that was saying was, um, there is a personal stake in this. the The world that's being saved is not just a bunch of people. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, you know, it's not just this huge mass of humanity. It's people with lives and loved ones and people that they don't want to lose. And you know, if if there's a crisis and if things will get blown up, you want to protect your family. And she is the or she represents, and she is the, the you know the the people with loved ones who have lives that shouldn't be destroyed by this this mad plan, and the protagonist has dragged her into it. I'll go into into a second, you know, why he's dragged her into it, and he he realizes that the world is full of people like her who've got lives and loved ones who 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 don't deserve to be wiped out, and that's who he's fighting for. And the protagonist see who he's fighting for, and the fact that he puts himself in harm's way to to preserve that is because that's that's who you're fighting for. The message of the film is the people in the future have looked back on what we've done to this planet, and, and maybe they've got a point. Maybe they've got a point that we fucked this up so much that the only thing that can happen is to to invert time and start again. And, and maybe maybe there'll be some planet left and something for someone left to live on. Um, but like uh, John David Washington says in the film, each generation is responsible for its own survival. And he wants to save all these people. It matters to him that these people that he sees and cares about, like Kat and Neil, they just, they deserve a world to live in. And I felt I felt that gave the film an emotional punch. Now, a lot of people felt that it didn't have an emotional punch. But at the end of the film, there's this beautiful scene where, because Kenneth Branagh, who's, who's you know married to Kat and has kind of been mistreating her and separating her from her son, he's been keeping her away. He's been telling his... He's been telling their son that she's too busy to spend time with him and she won't hold, he won't hold her hand. 
and he's he's fucking ruined her relationship with her son because he's such a fucking sociopath. And at the end, because she hung in there, because she did all the things that she did to fucking stay in his life and to you know, keep things going and to protect him, at the end, she just reaches out and holds his hand. And it's like that personal struggle is is what the protagonist is holding the line for. He's holding the line so people can fight their battles. And I thought, I thought that emotional core really mattered. And I, look, I, I appreciate sometimes people do find Christopher Nolan's writing a bit clunky. A lot of people felt that a lot of the dialogue and Interstellar with Anne Hathaway talking about her, the reason why she wants to go to a particular planet is that she she's in love with or was in love with um, you know, that the scientists who went there and a lot of people went, oh, that's so fucking clunky. Come on, Nolan, you can't write human beings. You know, I get it. And, and Chris, uh, Stanley Kubrick received similar criticism that people didn't see the human element in his films because he didn't think he needed to make that much effort to to show emotion in his films. He he, he, he decided he let the audience bring their own emotion to it. And, and sometimes his films can seem a bit cold as a result. I, I, thought, it was, I thought it was fantastic. And I, I thought... The way the film plays out is at the beginning, all you see is there's stuff that's coming backward in time. This doesn't make any sense. And then you get a little bit more and you get a little bit more. You get this breadcrumb trail. And then you see people going through turnstiles and then going back through time. And you go, this doesn't even fucking make... I, 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 don't, I don't understand what's going on here. But all the protagonist knows is that Kat is, is going to die if she, if she doesn't get taken back where she can recover. So he goes through. And in the course of going through the turnstile and going back to Oslo and going back over the job where they where they blew up the um uh where they you know, smashed into the, the 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 reserve with the with the aeroplane he knows there's a turnstile that that's where they got to go back to he's got got to go back over himself and in the course of that incredibly striking fight scene where he's fighting himself in two different time zones you start to see a little bit more about what's going on i i thought by the end of it that by going back over these extraordinary action sequences over again back through time and then go back through it back through time and go back through it by the end of it you've got this grasp of what's going on and not everyone because and, and i think if 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 you if you feel like the the director's got to you know do a bit more to to bring the audience along with you it's a valid it's a valid criticism and, and some people just went nolan for fuck's sake man i shouldn't be the one doing all the work and i get it but i felt it repaid that work because by the end of it i went oh my god now now's what now i get there's the way time inversion is going backwards and forwards across each other and then the red team and the blue team going across Stask 12 at the end and that inverted fight I can't I kind of got it by then and then and then watching it over it just it overlays you see there's all these extra bits in it that that completely that completely work and I thought it was absolutely amazing because I felt there was this this sense of clinging on by your fingernails to a reality that you don't understand anymore and step by step um you, you understand enough of what's going on and then by going back over it and back over it by going back through time again you, you they're, they're fighting the same battle forever the whole thing is like a time palindrome because neil is essentially from the future and has been time inverted and at the beginning he's at the opera house saving um the protagonist because the protagonist is his best friend and the and the protagonist doesn't even know him and at the end of the film neil's gonna die the protagonist has only just got to know him and neil says don't worry We've got a whole life together over the next ten years. You you just you just don't know it yet. Yeah, but and, how, no, but how can you how can he be time inverted the entire time? He's been time inverted from the very start when he goes back through the time version so he can have conversations with the protagonist and Elizabeth Debicki. It's messy. It's shit. If he's been time inverted from the very start and knows that oh I saved him at the opera house, but then he goes back through time inversion because they spend time in that fucking tent on the ship. 
Yeah. You know, that's messy. It's messy and it's wrong. And if you make a film that's messy and you don't make everything watertight, Inception is watertight. Interstellar is almost watertight because the final thing is, the final shot is very, the final kind of sequence is a bit messy. It's not watertight, but Inception is watertight and it works. You can't have a film where the, oh, you we have 10 years together, but you just don't know it yet because I, I, I die just there. But, you know, we're, we're fine. It's like, but he goes back through time inversion time and time and again. So that stuff is kind of stuff that fucks with the audience's mind. And it doesn't make, if it doesn't make sense, it can go and fuck itself. You know, I get that it has really good shots in it. The fighting yourself is really good, but you, you lose the stakes of everything. Oh yeah. A time inverted bullet's really bad because it rips through you and it's really dangerous. But Elizabeth DeVicke, who is a, she isn't a built woman. She's a relatively small, like thin, you know, frame. She gets shot and it's like, oh, you know what? We'll just put her back through time inversion and operate there. She'll be fine. And she's fine. You take away the stakes of everything. That's the problem with um, Chris Nolan films. It's like, oh, yeah, look at this bad shit that's going to happen. And then he takes away the stakes of it all. Same thing happened in Dark Knight Rises. Bane absolutely fucking kicks his cunt in and breaks his back. And Batman's back gets fucking fixed in a fucking cave in, is it Turkey or something like that? Or it's in, it's in some uh, Middle Eastern um, or North African prison and some guy can just fix his back with a bit of rope and you take away the stakes of it all you can't have you can't try and give me the stakes of the uh, the stakes of the world when i get that there's more than just you know the entire population there's more personal lives at stake but you can't you can't have the stakes of the film compromised because you just want to say oh look how bad an inverted bullet would be but it doesn't fucking do anything to anyone she gets shot in the fucking side from a yard away by her not even a yard it's literally on her skin so it's directly into her body no the stakes are gone completely because she's fine we'll just we're all play we'll, we'll, we'll invert you guys and she'll be fine you can't have the stakes of the world being at risk and then kind of undercut that line by saying and my son like you know what i mean it's it's messy it's clunky and i know that you like it because it's got it's got some really good shots and there's some really like tense moments and there are some stakes in it but for me the stakes are all completely undercut by a guy's lazy writing and not putting his heart and soul into making the film absolutely watertight that's my opinion of it he'd probably disagree with it if he's if he's listening and i mean i I mean i a pile of fucking balls sorry see the thing is i think he the the reason he's the reason he's he's actually turned some people off his last two films is because i think he's putting so much more into it I think he is actually making films more and more personal films now, um, and I think what he's he's not making as much effort to make the film um, sort of stack up in a, in a, in as neat a sense because actually Inception is a very neat film. I I think what what you see in Tenet as as it being messy is that it's not all clear. But I do believe it's all there in the story. If you go through it, if you go back through it, the fact is that they they looked at her and said she's going to die, and the protagonist said, "No, you know there there is a way to do it, but you have to you have to go through the 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 turnstile, and it takes a it takes days, and it's touch and go." I felt that it wasn't like an easy solution. I felt that it was like um, it, it was something that they had to kind of trust that, that that this might work, take her back through, and see if it works. And it's all about the almost taking a leap of faith that we've got no fucking choice. So go through this term style and see if it works. And there is an element of suspension of disbelief that you've got to keep this character going because her being shot creates drama that, oh my God, is she going to get killed? And then the fact that they go to all the trouble to kind of try and save her shows that the protagonist is not prepared to leave anyone behind, that it's not actually worth the struggle 
if you just let there just be hundreds of casualties and say, oh, well, it's all right for the greater good. And I I, I, I went with it. And in terms of the story being messy, I, I actually think that it the that there is so much in the story that it 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 looks like there are loose ends. And I think there are some loose ends in the story, but I, I think it all stacks up. The problem for I'd say for people who aren't necessarily, you know, happy enough to go with it, or someone who, who basically sets the standard on a film that it should make sense in one viewing, is that it's not one hundred percent clear. It's all there, but it's not clear. But if you, if you watch it back, and you go, I oh, see that makes sense. There's details like the name of the person who sold the fake um, art um, uh, uh, piece of art to Cat that got that got her into the whole problem with Sator. Um, his name is. I've got this listed here. Um, his name is Aripo, and that is that is an anagram of of opera, which which means that the Aripo guy is probably a code name of some kind, and that at some point the protagonist chose to go back in time and uh, entrap Cat because that was the way to get at Sator. And what what he's done is is that they get what what happens in, in in the reality of the film the protagonist has got to the end of this story where they've got through the battle at Stask Twelve and they've averted the algorithm's kind of destruction and they've they've killed Sator, but he realizes that there is now a time loop between that point and the point where they start you know fighting this battle where they're going to have to keep going back to protect it. He is he is trapped in a time loop because if he doesn't keep in that time loop, something is going to go wrong, and this algorithm is is going to happen again because these these turnstiles exist and these battles exist. So he he has decided at the end of that point that he's going to go back, and so is Neil, to fight this battle essentially with for for the rest of their lives in this time loop to protect this this point in in this almost like this rip in time where the world could be destroyed, and all the rest of it. Him and Neil forging their friendship. Him getting cat involved and and having to kind of get her out of it again, it's the price he has to pay for the mission. And you see at the start that he's prepared to do anything for the mission because he takes that suicide pill, and then he goes back through and um, uh, and essentially has recruited himself to to fulfill his own you know to to fulfill his own future. I thought it was absolutely mind blowing, but at the same time, I do think it stacks up. You keep going back through it, and that's why he goes back in time or in, goes back through the time turnstile to kill Priya before she can kill Kat because, you know, Kat says, I'm tying up loose ends. And and what he says is, no, there should be loose ends. It's not worth killing off this person. We, we'll, we'll leave the loose ends and I'll just watch. I will just watch. And Neil and I will just watch this time loop from the end of the mission to the beginning of the mission for the rest of our lives. We'll go back through. We'll check up. We will, we will check the messages. We'll ch- go back through the turnstiles. We will watch. We will watch over everyone. And, and fight this battle any number of times. The beautiful thing about Neil is that he goes back to the opera and he saves uh, the protagonist. And he goes back at the Battle of Stalks and, and he he's the one who who, who um, has to, to go in when the the, the, the area gets sealed up uh, so that he can actually avert disaster. And he knows, he knows before he goes and does any of that, that that's his, he's going to have to go back through that time scale. And he might have to go back through again and he might have to go back through again and then eventually he's going to get killed because that's his journey. And I thought it was amazing to to see that play out. The, the thing is, though, it asks a lot of the audience. It says to the audience, not all of this, there's two things the audience can do. The audience can just go with it, 
all the audience can say, if you want to follow this, you are going to have to really follow this. And it might take a second watching for all of those things to, to, to come through. And what looks like something that is messy is just that it's not all clear. But it, the more you look at it, the more the, the beauty of it is that it's a film about time inversion, that if you go back over, if you go back through and do it again, you you add another layer and, 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 you, and, you, and you get nearer to where you want to be. If you go back through this film again, it becomes clearer. And then you go back again, you go, oh my God, look at look no, at what's contained is, in all this. Is, and I thought that was amazing. No, I think the thing is, is that the fact that you've gone in and you've had to do all that explanation for it when the film should be doing that itself. I'm not asking for exposition and it all to be explained out to me, but the fact that I've watched it twice and none of that is clear. And it's already well, like, you know, they do, they do forge a friendship and they do get close and they do manage to, um, you know, do the mission and they manage to, you know, yeah. build that bond. That's fine. I don't have any problems with that. It's just the actual showing of the action and the sequences after they say they're going to do it is so clunky and so messy that it's just, it's not, there's no rewatchability. I've got, I've got no incentive to rewatch that film a third time because I've watched it twice now. He's basically spat his toys out of the pram and said, well, cinemas need to uh, invest money into speakers. So therefore I'm going to make no effort to refine the sound of my films. Go fuck yourself. You know, the, no, there's there's no justification for that because, okay, I get that you're trying to make a political point, but rather than have like a, not political point, but you know, you're trying to make a point and instead of getting something done about it, you've just basically made the, the audience suffer as a result because not everyone has, one, not everyone has the money to spend £15 to £20 on an IMAX ticket. Sometimes people have to spend money on a family for a four ticket where it's like £4.50 each. And that might be in a shitty cinema um, where the speakers are very good. So that, that that's annoying. Because you're saying, oh well, they should do more. But sometimes people can't afford that, and sometimes little cinemas can't afford to do that. So that that's just snobby, and you know, it feels like although he's trying to make a point towards cinemas, it's actually the watchers that are suffering from it, and the film suffers as a result because it's terrible. The especially the, the sequences with Aaron Taylor Johnson using the face mask and things like that. But the fact that the film is the fact that you're doing more explanation, trying to explain the plot more now than the film ever could do unless you watch it about 15 times ridiculous because I'm not watching a film 15 times. I've got an incentive to watch Interstellar, Interstellar again. When I watched it the first time, I went, oh, that ending's like, it's a bit mind-bending. And I thought about the ending for Interstellar for like a couple of days and then I went to watch it again. And I was like, all right, okay. But, but the rest of the film is good to watch. You've got the sequence with the uh, the, the planet with the massive waves. You've got the uh, the sequence with um when they go to the the Matt Damon planet spoilers. I know he's not, yeah. even, he's not even yeah, the cast, yeah. but you've got, you've got cool shots. You've got the shots where you go through the wormhole. You've got the redocking sequence. You've got those really cool bits. I don't think there's a single point in Tenet where I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'll power through it because there's these really good bits to, there's these excellent polished, you know, sequences. Cause there isn't, there isn't. And I know you really like this film. You defend it, but those, you'll even admit yourself that it's, it's a hard watch. Even if you enjoy it, it's a hard watch and it shouldn't be a hard watch. It should be a challenging watch. And I kind of like, oof, there's some visceral stuff going on here, but it's not, it's just, it's a big clunky time inverted mess. That's basically what intent is to me. I, I look, and I understand. And I, I think what this is, is that people come down on one side or other of this film. And I think it's similar to Dunkirk is that, Christopher Nolan has done what he set out to do with this film, and some people are going to like it, and some people aren't. I, I get, I get what you're saying, but I loved it. I thought it was. I thought I was thrilled from beginning to end of this. I thought the, I thought the aeroplane going into the the Freeport was stunning. I thought that first fight sequence where one person's going forward through time, one going back through time. I thought that was amazing. I loved the 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 heist and then reverse car chase in Talon. I thought the battle at the end where some people are going forward through time, going through back through time, and there are explosions going on backwards and forwards at the same time while the music is being played forwards and backwards at the same time. I thought it was an absolutely stunning, daring piece of cinema. And at the same time, 
I totally understand why a lot of people, for entirely valid reasons, would be very pissed off by it. What I would say is, is that over time, I I think that more people are going to revisit this film, and more people are going to go back over it, and and will uh, will come to appreciate what it had. At the same time, though, if someone feels that a film that hasn't, you know, that requires further viewings to com- to completely get its point across has failed, that's a valid point. I think that's a completely defensible uh, like stance to take on cinema. I, I just think similar to what um, uh, Kubrick did with 2001 and A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon is that he's he's leaving large parts of this film wide open. And and, and similarly, you've watched something like Barry Lyndon that the whole, almost the whole second half of that film, people will watch it and have wildly different interpretations of what's going on. Why does this character kind of suddenly find himself stuck and unable to do anything? And it doesn't explain, but there is an explanation in there. And, if you're not prepared to go with that, I think that's entirely valid. And I'm sure for the sake of us us enjoying a Christopher Nolan film together, I hope that what he does next time is something that we both love, like Interstellar was. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, personally, I, 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 I absolutely loved Tenet, and I loved what it was trying to do. And I think this is going to go down as his most divisive film, but also his most ambitious. And I think it will... Um, I think it will continue to be discussed for a long time. It was... I certainly think it deserves some credit for just going out and, and putting itself out there when, when no other big film was prepared to do so. Um, I certainly think that it was it was it was a brave move. And I get what some people are saying. It's a similar thing when Nolan Reese says everyone should shoot on film and not everyone can afford to. Um and I think what some people did was some people did actually adjust the mix of 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 tenets so that it would work in their cinemas. And I think that's what people are gonna have to do from now on with these films because I, I think I think filmmakers pushing the boundaries is a good thing, and he's really pushed the boundaries here. And I think it's it's very interesting that someone's prepared to do with this with a film that big, because when he did Memento, that film cost nine million dollars, and that's a head fuck of a film. And I think it's really interesting that there are people out there prepared to do that in films as big as as Christopher Nolan films. Um, but I certainly wouldn't say to anyone who didn't like it or that you just didn't understand it. I totally get it. He's tried to do something very specific here and it's not going to be for everyone because he has made a film that is could be described as messy or could be described as this is really unclear and not all of it is 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 spelt out as much as some people film feel a film should should be and this is not an argument of oh film should be simple it's this asks a lot of its audience and I just thought it, this this was worth it this film was worth the work for me but I understand someone saying it wasn't worth the work for them yeah, no, I think we'll just have to agree to disagree. Um, I'm sure there are folk like yourself that loved it, folk like me that disliked it. But to me, it was yeah. I think it's just a a, a film we'll never agree on. Understood. <laughs>